G'day, I'm Rob. Hi, this is Mike. Mike, hello! Oh my god. <laughs> yes, I am not Dave. I am <laughs> I am coming in from sunny California. Yes, it's our Californian connection, folks. Mike Solko is joining us, and thank you very much for doing that, Mike. Oh, it's great to be back. Um, you know, I, I love Dave. I love his co-hosting, but, you know, it's always nice to be able to step in and chat, too. So, you are missed, Dave. Uh, thank you for letting me hopefully fill your seat for the day. <laughs> I don't even know where Dave is today. I know he's got some holidays coming up, but if anyone's been watching Australian politics of late and knows that Dave works within government, we just changed Prime Minister, so there's there's a bunch of stuff happening at the moment, so I, gosh knows where he is at the moment, who he's talking to. That's Yeah, that's pretty wild. So um, yeah. it's I, I imagine politics is probably about the most volatile thing you can work in, so yeah, <laughs> keeps you on your toes for certain. It does. So, Dave, when you listen to this, you'll probably be on a beach in Hawaii somewhere, I believe. Um, Enjoy, because you've probably just had a hell of a time this past week in politics. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Shall we repeat some news, Mike, before we get on to our main topic of uh, discussion? I I don't know. Has Chibnall given us anything since you recorded last? (laughs) Not much. Yeah, it's kind of a nice change of pace, to be honest. Yeah, it's 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 actually for somebody like myself who avoids spoilers, it's been wonderful so far. So, but yeah, let's let's see what news we have here today. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I I need to kick off Mike as you would no doubt appreciate with the news (laughs) that there is a season nineteen Blu-ray coming. Davo's first season is coming to Blu-ray. I'm so excited. I'm very happy for you. I think it's a very good choice to follow up on season twelve, which is the last set we got. Um, you know, again, is that uh, I, I think if they're going to start doing this as a regular thing, it makes sense to start with the introductory stories for each doctor, or the introductory seasons. Um, you know, I, I prefer season 21 or, t- or 20, but at the same time, from a casual viewer perspective, it's going to be so much easier to jump in at this point. Oh, absolutely. And look, when people go back, if you haven't already listened to our Davo episode, you'll hear me actually wax lyrical about a lot of season 19. I I have a soft spot for it. I know why the other seasons are good too, (laughs) but season 19, there are some great stories in it. And it's also making me wonder whether the next uh, Blu-ray release might not be, say, Pertwee's first season or something like that. Well, as long as it's not uh, Colin's first season, I think we'll be in good shape. Um, love Colin, but just yikes, that's rough. Um, yeah, I, so, so I mean, I think season seven would be an interesting choice, but those longer form stories are going to be very difficult, uh, you know, for viewers who are newer to the series to get through. But at the same time, season 24, one of my favorites, uh, it's, it's not the most steady season. So it's interesting to see where they go next. That's right, and that's what I was thinking. I was thinking, Colin's first season, if, if this is what they're going to do, like launch all the first seasons first, I thought, Colin's, no, Sylvester's. I love Sylvester, but his first season's a bit ropey. Hmm, maybe it's Pertwee, because, you know, um, Troughton would be difficult, and, you know, do they really want to do Hartnell being a black and white? Uh, it's like, mm, I don't know. I, I would I would jump on that. I, I would order that so quickly if they did Hartnell. But, again, I understand why that may not be the case. Although, honestly, I, I think the the reactions to the Hartnell era were probably the most positive out of all of Twitch when they did that uh, whole Twitch thing over a month and a half. And so I could see that uh, maybe maybe there would be a market for it at this point from people who enjoyed it and would like to actually own it. So it could be a surprise to us. Hashtag London 1965. Oh, you know, uh, I, I am <laughs> very excited that uh, both Caroline Ford and William Russell are going to be at Gallifrey One this year. Uh, so I, I need to get a London 1965 shirt. Not Don't. that has anything... Not that it has anything to do with Susan, but still. Don't rub it in, Mike. Don't rub it in. 
Sorry, I don't mean to rub it in. Um, but but uh, again, it's, it's just it's it's neat to see that people embrace that season. Um, sadly, they did not embrace Delta and the Bannerman like like it lives in my heart. But again, it's just nice to see that fans did it. And so again, it's maybe, you know, another thing with season seven is they've already mastered or remastered uh, Spearhead from Space. Mm. So so really, I mean, if you think about it, about a quarter of the season is already completed and they could just port that over very easily and just get those next three stories done. That's right. So uh, will that be next? Who knows? The only other thing I'd, I'd add at this point was I was wondering when they first announced the Baker season, gosh, how often are they going to release these? These are, you know, big, important things to be putting out. And they're, they're sort of rushing this season 19 out hot on the heels of the Baker season. I mean, people are still only getting their... Um, some of the discs, people, if you haven't realised, on the Baker box are um, are a bit dodgy, and people are getting replacement discs. I think for Revenge of the Cybermen and um, and the Sontaran story, I think, uh, if yeah. I'm not mistaken. And yeah, people are still only getting their replacement discs for that set, and now this next set is being announced uh, as coming out just before um, the anniversary this year. Yeah, and I saw some of the replacement discs have the exact same problems with the credits. So oh, it's almost no. like they just. So it's almost like somebody in the assembly assembly line or somebody at the packing part uh, place just didn't realize that it's not that the disc doesn't work. It's the actual onboard material, and it's something like I think it was just maybe like Michael Wisher's name was slightly misspelled. So it's one of those things that again, it's it's not a deal breaker. It's not like your disc doesn't work. It's not like a whole special feature is botched. But at the same time, I mean, for people who are collectors, I could see how it would be a big deal. Yeah, so. absolutely. And especially with the price you pay for it at retail, it's gosh, it's yeah. expensive. Well, and I think that's going to be the hardest part about this is, uh, you know, I could see one every six months or so being reasonable. But if you start getting to every quarter, uh, it's going to be very hard for people to keep up. Mm. And I, I would imagine the print runs are not very high on these as well. So there's always that fear. If I don't spend my money now, I will never get this or I'll have to pay $400 on eBay just to get a copy. Yeah, well, in the UK, people are certainly saying, it's a sellout, it's a sellout, it's gone, ah. <laughs> uh, that's not the case here in Australia. I can go down to the shops right now and buy it, and it's certainly available online. I don't know, maybe for our UK listeners, if you want to buy a Region 4 version of it, uh, <laughs> buy it from Australia, it'll actually be cheaper. But um, I, I digress. Um, I don't know if they'll repress it in the UK. Um, maybe they've been taken by surprise with how popular it was. Yeah, it's a tough call. I, I would say that their best bet would be to release a few more, see if the market is still there for season 12 and go from there. Um, you know, thankfully, it's not like kind of like if you don't read the first novel in a series, you're not going to get the rest of it or the first issue of a comic book. There's always kind of that disconnect if you try to pick it up later. But thankfully, with Doctor Who is you can jump into season 19 and not lose anything by not having seen season 12. Yeah, precisely right. Anyway, shall we move on? Have you got some news, Mike? Okay, yeah. So uh, there's a new game out, uh, and it's for PC platforms. It might be on Mac as well. You can download it off the Steam application, and it's called uh, Doctor Who Infinity. Mm-hmm. And if you've played the previous Doctor Who puzzle app, uh, you know, where it's kind of like uh, breaking gems, things like that, it's along those same lines. It's from the same company, uh, but it's a little bit different because this one is presented more like a, a comic book illustrated story. Uh, they got Michelle Gomez in to do some voices. Uh, Ingrid Oliver's doing some voices, uh, recreating uh, Osgood, um, as well as a few uh, characters who are new to the story. Um, so it's it's interesting. I played it for about an hour the other night, uh, and this would be the first chapter featuring those two actresses. And it's a Dalek story. Uh, the art is very good. The dialogue is snappy. It's it's kind of like listening to a really good audiobook. The problem is if you've ever played a video game, maybe like a Metal Gear Solid or even some of the Bioware games where mm. 
you're sitting there watching a cutscene for 10 minutes, and after a certain point you realize, I'd like to play a game now. <laughs> so so again, is it, it very much blurs that line between am I watching a story and occasionally pitching in, or am I actually engaging with this product? Uh, because again, is it sort of like you'll watch 5 to 10 minutes of cutscene, and then all of a sudden it's like, okay, here's a puzzle. Now uh, you know, break the gems that match the colors, or do little objectives and things like that. Uh, so it doesn't really feel like it impacts the game. It almost feels like it's now a distraction from the story you're watching. Um, you know, there's there's uh, Telltale Games is a company out there that does. Uh, they've done Batman, Walking Dead, and a few other properties. And what's really neat about their games is it's story driven. It's like watching cutscenes, but when you get to those decision moments, you're impacting the outcome of the game. Uh, whereas again with this, it just doesn't feel like there's any impact. So the production value is very good. Um, for twelve dollars, is it worth it? Maybe. Uh, they've mm-hmm. got a lot of writers uh, and artists who are related to the Doctor Who properties. I know uh, Gary Russell is going to be doing one soon. Scott Hancock. Uh, Nicholas Briggs, of course, will be in the mix at some point. So, again, as you've got people who are decent storytellers, but I'm just not sure if it's going to appeal to people as a game. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Uh, but there's going to be new chapters, I believe, every month or so. And you can buy them in a bundle up front, or you can buy each one as it comes out as DLC. So, mm-hmm. um more to come, I guess, with that one. Um, you know, again, as I have high hopes for it, but so far, I'm not in a rush to play anymore. Yeah, Doctor Who and PC games, it hasn't been the best of relationships over the last 30-odd oh, thir- years. Uh, there have been a few duff ones. Um, <laughs> I, I, I haven't played this one myself. I know precisely what you mean about some games where you're just waiting to get through the cutscene and you're even hitting the space bar and you can't jump forward, you know, the first time it plays at least and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, I I know what you mean about that. I've got a Doctor Who game, though, to talk about, and it's not on PC. It's actually a a mobile game. Um, I'm playing it on iPhone. I think it's on Android as well. And it's called Doctor Who Battle of Time. Have you seen this one, Mike? No, I don't think I have. Okay. This came out in late May, but I've only just started playing it in the past month. And looking back through the the production notes, it seems that they've been doing a lot of updates to it. And maybe it's only in the last month that it's been the most playable, if I can put it that way. You know, they've tweaked here and tweaked there, and they've made this game quite playable. And what it (laughs) is, it's it's a free-to-play game, although there is the option to buy cards, because it is a collectible card-type game. Oh, goodness. Mmm, where yeah. you've got uh, a range of uh, different decks. There's a unit deck and a Dalek deck and a, oh gosh, uh, time agents deck. And, you know, some of the decks can be merged and some of them can't and all this sort of stuff. And I've been playing it for free. I haven't actually invested any money into the game. I've just been playing daily and picking up my rewards daily and, and that sort of thing. And I've been leveling up my cards. Um, when you when you get so many of a certain card, you can actually level it up for gold. And the gold is all in-game currency that you earn through battling against your enemies and so on and so forth. And I found it quite a fun little thing. It looks simplistic. It's very easy to learn. But it gets very, very tactical the more you get into it. And I've really been enjoying um, Battle of Time. I play it most lunchtimes, actually, at work. (laughs) I'll have to check that one out, uh, especially because I I like the fact that it sounds like you can play it without those microtransactions and still have fun. I've been doing Marvel Strike Force with the Marvel Comics characters, and the community's in uproar. So um, they keep trying to hit people for more money, more money, more money. And, you know, when you're playing a free-to-play game, it gets very obnoxious after a certain point. So... Yeah, I'll definitely have to download that this weekend and give it a try. 
Yeah, please do, please do. And um, I will say there have been parts of the game where I've I've reached a point and I'm like, oh, this is so tough. This is so tough. If if I had maybe some some really great cards, maybe I could play this a bit more easily. But you know, once I play through the same you know enemy a few times, I think, oh, I've beat it now. So maybe it's more me than just needing really great cards, you know. Um, and I've literally spent no money. Yeah, and I'd love to actually. It'd be so fun to sit in a conference and listen to developers talk about these free-to-play games uh, and and how they get you hooked like that. They give you two or three levels where you think, "Oh, I'm really good at this. I know what I'm doing." <laughs> and then all of a sudden, you know, you hit that level where again, you're right. Is if I just spend three dollars, I know I can clear this. Uh, yeah. But again, is it's just that perseverance and and not letting yourself get too frustrated. Yeah, like in a lot of gaming, I think it's like a time thing. You think I can get through this level now if I buy a pack of really good cards. What's what's that worth to me? Is the next hour worth three dollars? Is the next hour worth seven ninety nine? You know that sort of thing. I'm, I'm sure they've got psychologists on their um on their books. <laughs> oh, it's it's as bad as Vegas. Uh, they they have it down to a science, and that's uh, just the nerd I am. I'd love to get in there and just learn about that piece. So mm. yeah, <laughs> shall we move on? Yeah. So speaking of people who are very good at getting your money from you, uh, Big Finish, uh, <laughs> Big Finish has just made a great new announcement. Uh, 2019 is going to be the 20th anniversary of their having the Doctor Who license. Uh, they started with Sirens of Time back in 1999. Gosh. So now they're going to be doing a story called The Legacy of Time. And uh, whereas Sirens of Time diplomatically was not very good, mm-hmm. um, I, I actually have some hopes for this one. Um, it's not going to be cheap. It's a six box or sorry, six disc box set um, where it's going to have six different stories involved. And uh, they are just throwing everything in the mix. And the fact that it seems like it's going to have space to play out seems very promising. Um, there's going to be an eighth doctor story, which involves River Song and Bernice Summerfield meeting. So I know that's one people have been clamoring for for a long time, including myself. Um, And it'll just be interesting to see whether they're pals or whether they're at each other's throats or just how that dynamic works, Uh, because they're both very possessive of the doctors. But at the same time, they also get very frustrated with the doctors. Both archaeologists. (laughs) Exactly. So, I mean, there's just a lot of common ground there and they're both very Mm. strong, excellent characters. So that's going to be cool. Um, I should step back and say is it has all of the surviving doctors from the classic series uh, from Tom Baker all the way through Paul McGann. And uh, you have most of the companions you would expect. Um, They're bringing back Charlie Pollard from the early eight doctor stories um countermeasures the the team from the remembrance of the dalek tv story um they're going to be in there so they're just doing this really big mashup and and nobody's quite sure yet how it's going to play out um the catch is this was announced this week and it's not going to be out till july of 2019 so there's a lot of lead time before this but they've said they're only going to press 4,000 copies um, okay. And and I think that's pretty high even by their usual amount, but I would not be surprised if this doesn't sell out in advance. So again, there's that kind of like that collector mentality we talked about is if I don't buy this now, I'm not going to get a physical copy. It'll be available for download for the future. But, uh, you know, for people who want to have that item sitting on their shelf, they're going to have to make that choice whether to buy now or take the chance later. While you were talking, I just leaned over and pulled my copy of The Light at the End off the shelf, <laughs> which which some people will know, uh, but some might not know, was the 50th anniversary uh, Big Finish box set that they made. And I flipped it over to see how many they made of that, and they made 10,000 of that. And I know they're still trying to sell copies of that. <laughs> 
that. <laughs> um, well, you know, and they've moved towards a format now, and they've been very open about this, that if you want to get physical copies of things, that pre-ordering is the way to go. They're not going to be overprinting like they have been in the past, and that's simply because with Brexit, the cost of materials increasing, as well as just more and more people moving to the download format, why, mm. why press 10,000 copies? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I'm I'm actually reaching a point where I love having the McGann's as physical discs, but some of the other ones that I've bought over the years where they've been on sale and I have the physical discs here, I also obviously have the download available through Big Finish and they have that lovely app that you can have yeah. on your phone. And I, I'm realizing now I can actually sell these discs in some cases for, for not bad money and I still have a copy of the story digitally. And I'm thinking I might start to do that. Maybe not for the McGann ones. I think I'll just keep all the McGann ones. But for some of the others, I'm thinking I might start to sell mine. And maybe in the future, unless they're McGann ones, just buy digitally. Yeah, I, you know, obviously anybody who follows me on Twitter knows I'm a pretty big, big Finnish junkie. Um, you know, I've reviewed Big Finish way in the past when we were still doing TARDIS Library here. Mm. And um, I, I have over 400 titles from Big Finish. And of course, some of those are single issues or say single episode stories. Some of them are multi stories. So again, as you know, how much that actually breaks out to as far as entertainment goes, it's a mix. Um, and I just like to say I leverage every sale. So please don't think I bought those all at full price. But, um, you know, again, some of those were 99 cents, some of them at full price. But, but the point I was going to get to is that out of that, I maybe have 30 discs, if even that, I would say probably closer to 20. Uh, really, the only time I buy physical discs if, uh, is if I want to get something autographed at a convention. Right. Um, or the other exception would be is if it's a series I really, really love, I will pre-order it just to kind of show I, I'm willing to spend money on a physical copy of this. Um, yeah. But, but again, it's, 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 to me, I've reached that point in my life, whether it be comics, whether it be CDs, DVDs, things like that, is I've really hit the point where I just I don't need the clutter anymore. And it's tough, you know, it's tough because it uh, it's there's just still that feeling about what if, what if, what if. And well, you know, as long as I can save that copy to a hard drive and maybe back it up on a DVD and just have it, you know, in three different places, I won't feel so bad. Yeah, I mean, after I got Netflix, obviously we didn't have Netflix as early as the US in Australia, but once we got it, I started looking at my collections and I thought, oh, I have all the early Marvel superhero movies on DVD but now I'm just watching them on Netflix. Do I need to buy them? And, oh, you know, the, the struggle is real. Yeah, or even is it worth more to me to just spend 99 cents to digitally rent this movie as opposed to spending 20 bucks to watch it maybe once every three or four years? So it's it's those tough things. And, um, you know, I know that that's where all media is moving at this point. So it's going to be just interesting to see how we consume all this. Uh, but, but yeah, Legacy of Time, uh, it's going to be coming in July 2019. Um, again, it's kind of early. I don't even think there's a trailer yet, so we'll just kind of have to see how it shapes up. But it, it sounds like it's on the right track. You know, I did like um, I, I, Light at the End, which you mentioned uh, back in 2013. Uh, but I, this one just sounds like it's it's more sprawling and has more potential. Yeah, I mean, also, in, correct me if I'm wrong, but in 2013, they also did a um, sort of a co-project with the BBC, and they put out these single Doctor stories, one for each Doctor as well. Do you remember that s series? I can't quite think of its name. Oh, gosh, I, I could see the covers, but I can't think of the name. But you are right, as they did do that kind of with uh, with all of the Doctors. and But I think those were kind of more of the narrated story type of thing. That's uh, right. Christmas, but yeah, but, but I do remember the ones... Uh, it wasn't key to time, but it was something, uh, 
Uh, yeah, I'm not going to yeah. be able to remember it. Dusty the doctors, maybe. Uh, but yeah, so it's the thing. So you know what? Again, big finish. There's more material than any of us will ever listen to in our lifetime. So, mm-hmm. but this one looks good. <laughs> Alrighty, shall we move into our short topics for the episode, Mike? Yes, let's do that. Okie dokie. I'm going to kick off with a doozy, Mike. <laughs> do we have to? Ah, <laughs> uh, look. I I think we can be very fair about this. Yeah. I, it needs to be spoken about because this past few, uh, well, this past week in particular, Talons of Wang Chiang has reared its head again. Uh, there's been controversy because the Time Team in Doctor Who magazine had a look at it, and the Time Team, as everyone knows now, are a, a new Time Team. They're very young. They looked at Talons and were aghast at what they saw uh in the editorial marcus hearn the editor of the magazine tried to balance that out a little bit and cue doctor who fandom going insane either at marcus or at the time team or at both of them or you know it's just (laughs) been fandom running wild as hulk hogan might say mike did you see this you can't say Hulk Hogan in this discussion either because just racism, Hulk Hogan. It just oh, we don't no. want to talk about that. But sorry, totally, totally different fandom. But let's just move forward. So uh, totally unintentional too. Uh, yeah. So I'm on team time team with this to a degree because they didn't completely trash the entire episode. They spoke about a lot of highlights about it. They just said that from their perspective, coming to this story, um, you know, that's considered a classic. It was really difficult for them to get past that. And uh, I watched this story for the first time in 2016, even though I've been watching Who since like 1986 or 87. Mm. Uh, So I watched it for the first time and it was extremely difficult for me to get through. Um, Production quality, uh, acting, everything is very strong in this story, but it's just so difficult to get past that very core piece of the just the Chinese characters and the very stereotyped things. Mm. And what I think was a little frustrating is that the editor had the opportunity here to say is, I love this story. I've grown up on this story, and I think it has benefits that outweigh what what I what I feel or you know what I feel is problematic. But the the time team came at it from a different example, and I think it's really interesting to hear what they have to say, um, as opposed to as the editor saying they're wrong. Um, mm. You know, again, as I think that. I think that it was a little too dismissive of, of the team. And again, is I don't think there's anything wrong with defending the story up to a point. I think there's nothing wrong with saying I enjoy the story and I'm able to overlook these things. Uh, just for me personally, I couldn't really get past it. And again, I just I just feel like squashing it was a little too much. But what do you think? Oh, there, there, there's two strands I can pick up here. I'll, I'll pick up the, the time team one first, maybe. When the new time team was announced, my overriding comment, and I said this on Twitter, so people, if, if you're really interested, you can go <laughs> back and find it. Uh, I was saying it straight to DWM uh, at Dwim Tweets. I was saying, you know, there's not a, a sort of an age diversity in your team. I think it would be more interesting if you had these new young folk in and some people who have seen it all before and some people in the middle and then when you talk about episodes the young people might be seeing precisely what we're seeing here the older people have a different point of view and the discussion will all be within the pages of their review because everyone's discussing it at once it won't be people all of a similar age and probably all of a like mind saying all of the same thing um i can see why they've gone with the way they went with it in fact i think Dwim Tweets even wrote back to me and had a comment, if I recall. But I just think the way I would have set up that team, you'd still have these young people having their very important views, 
but you'd have the debate within the context of the article rather than the editor having to say, oh, look, the time team have said this, I think this, you know. (laughs) So that's one comment on just the nature of the time team. In terms of the episode itself, I know it's problematic, Mike. I know. <laughs> I, you know, I would have, I would have seen this in the eighties as like a ten-year-old, probably the first time I saw it. And, you know, at that age, it just wasn't problematic at all. Um, even though there are parts of it that are. Um, when I look at it now, I think the question I ask myself is: Are Hinchcliffe, are Holmes, are Maloney, or any of the production team trying to demonise? the Chinese and I think well what I know of Hinchcliffe and Holmes and Maloney and so on I don't think they would be I don't think they're those kind of people I you know I don't think that's what they're trying to do so I understand that looking at it with 2018 eyes you see these problems you think oh my god look at this but when you dig in I don't think that's the intent but I just wonder whether folk that come at it with real clean I mean you've been watching the show for 30 odd years Mike, but people who have been watching the show maybe only knew who, maybe only the last five years, and come to it as a real clean skin. Do they have that sort of background for what the era was like, what the people making it, the people writing it were like? I don't know. And I'll I'll just finish with one thing. I'm, I'm listening to Big Finish at the moment, Son of the Dragon. And in that, Perry is very upset with Vlad the Impaler and his laws because he's very um, authoritarian. And Davo, in that story, says, Perry, you've got to put it in the context of the era. And I thought, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm listening to this in the same week this Doctor Who debate is happening elsewhere, where a lot of it is, "Mm, think about it in terms of the era. Yes, it's problematic, but, you know, and and on and on the conversation goes. So that's my point of view on it. Yeah, there's there's definitely I mean, we could we could go on for a long time about this. And the only piece I try to come at it from is that I think to viewers in I guess that would have been what about 77, 75. Yeah, 77, I think is about right. But um, I think to the majority of viewers who we would maybe tend to to jump to being mainstream would probably be, you know, uh, uh, being Britain, more of a white family, things like that. But Mm -hmm. I think for somebody who would be of Asian descent or Chinese descent, watching it at that time would they have felt it was okay or not and i know at least one of the editors who was uh defending the story did have uh chinese heritage so again in his case he had no problem with it so it's very difficult because it's it's not that we can say blanketly all people will think this or all you know there's no way to break it down demographically like that but i i appreciate that fandom can have the conversations um and i really hope that both the time team and just DWM as a whole kind of were able to to do more topics like this. Um, you know, is is it's it's worth discussing these things and how they make us feel. So yeah, I think Doctor Who is almost unique in this because of its age that we can have uh, stories that show different views from different eras. Just because the show has been going for so long, and have fans from different eras who grew up with certain views or grew up with certain things on television and to them it's completely normal and but 50 years down the line someone else is like oh my god you're saying that you know and (laughs) and they cannot believe it it blows their mind and yet it's all part of this broad church of doctor who and i don't think other shows have this because they just haven't gone as long you know they've had their eras and they've ended in their eras and that's that 
Yeah, absolutely. And just one more thing is uh, I definitely want to say is, though, even though it, I have a lot of problems with the episode, I don't think that the creators intentionally set out to do those things. Um, I think it's just kind of it is a product of the environment they were writing in and the era they were writing in. So, again, uh, just yeah, it's not that I think the intention was there. But again, what we bring to things and what we take from things will always be varied by the people. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Anyway, shall we move on? Have you got a short topic, Mike? <laughs> well, just uh, speaking of people not getting along, uh, Big Finish uh, had another <laughs> announcement, and this one's uh, really surprising. It's one that I don't think anybody ever anticipated. Uh, they're going to be doing some stories set during Season 18 featuring Tom Baker, uh, Lala Ward, and uh, Adric Waterhouse, uh, sorry, Matthew Waterhouse. <laughs> uh, and- Thanks, Ian. That's still the best joke. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so uh, it's going to have uh, the Doctor, Romana, and Adric. Um, and of course, I'm assuming that's set in eSpace. And they haven't really released details as usual. Um, I don't even think these are coming till 2020 and 2021. Wow. Uh, but they just kind of did an announcement on it. Um, I think there was even maybe like a, a picture, which was very, very Photoshop, bless them. Um, because I can only <laughs> assume that these three parties had to be recorded separately. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> and do we assume they've recorded already? Because they record a lot in advance. Big finish, don't they? It varies by series. Um, oh. Some of the some of the things like the Warmaster, uh, which comes out in October, uh, was just being recorded last month. Uh, but yeah, you do get these other items where, like with the Tom Baker stuff, um, you know, if for, I don't want to say for obvious reasons, but I mean we kind of understand that they're really stockpiling mm. it. Um, even in some of the extras, uh, Tom Baker will joke about the fact, like, who knows if I'll be alive when you hear this, uh, but. <laughs> So, so I think that that is it, but I think Tom really enjoys it as well. So, um, you know, I think they just try to really do stuff in bulk and really have it prepared to come out for the next several days, de- probably for the next decade, to be honest. But um, so it's interesting. I, I really love this particular team. I'd even be happy if they did a couple stories with the, the fourth doctor and Adric on their own. And again, it's, uh, you know, it's just gonna be interesting to see even how the production works on that and how they move forward with it. Yeah. So I, I don't know where you land on that stuff, but. Oh look! Uh, in terms of Tom Baker on Big Finish in general, I'm I'm surprised at how weak his voice sounds. And I know people come down on me like a ton of bricks, saying, "Well, my God, Robbie's eighty something years old." <laughs> yeah, I, I totally get that. But he his voice remains so big and strong, even up into the uh, Little Britain days where he'd be doing the narration. You know, Britain, 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 and he was very strong and and so on. And when I listen to the Big Finish stuff, his voice is, it's just starting to lose something. Do you, do you detect that when you listen to Big Finish? Um, it's its why I've struggled with some of his stories, to be honest. Um, I, I feel like he can do stoic scenes very well. I think he can do more of the quiet stuff or even some of the confrontational pieces. I think he's still pretty strong with. But it's more of that uh, Graham Williams era bombasticness, you're right. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just not quite as strong as it used to be. So when you hear those moments where he's being a little bit goofy... Yes. It doesn't translate directly. But then again, you know, it's that that idea that it's been 40 years since these stories were originally recorded. So, you know, he's probably at a very different place in his mm-hmm. life as, uh, as wonderfully peculiar as the man is. So um, it's, it's just hard to say how he's approaching it. But but I do agree. It's just there's that little bit of uh, just really over the top uh, acting that's not there anymore. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, and it's not to say it's bad. It's just that again, is it's just it just doesn't feel quite right, almost in the way that Colin is the Bizarro version of that, where Colin is so much stronger than he was on TV. Mm. Um, 
you know, again, that it's um, even though he's in his early 70s, you know, again, as he's just bringing so much life and so much to the character um, that it's really impressive. Yeah. Yeah, look, completely agree. And and people out there will be wanting to slap me around the head and say, Rob, <laughs> stories with Tom Baker in them are better than no Tom Baker stories at all. I completely get that. You don't have to write in and tell me. <laughs> it's just, it's that suspension of disbelief that comes with listening to actors playing parts they played 30 to 40 years ago and just being able to kind of tweak your expectations a little bit. Yeah. So, uh, it's understandable. Even Davo's voice has quite changed from what it was, and, and I struggle with that at times. He still manages to go a bit squeaky at times, but um, <laughs> it's few and far between. He's generally more gruff and perry, you know, come over here. And it's like, oh, that <laughs> doesn't sound like Davo. <laughs> Yeah, you know, um, you know, and it's interesting, though, is, uh, is thinking about this era, season 18 is, um, you know, I, I think that it's interesting because I think Adric worked very well with the fourth Doctor and even Romana to a point, whereas I didn't enjoy him in season 19. And I feel like that's something that kind of segs into our topic today mm-hmm. um, is the different ways we can interpret uh, companions or or really just what we think of them. That's right. So uh, I think that's probably a good opportunity to move into our main topic. Mike. You came up with this idea, so before I talk about it, do you want to give some brief thoughts on it? Um, you know, I was I was just looking for something that was going to be a little bit fun, um, a little bit easy to digest for the listening audience, um, and just something where, you know, again, it's, it's, it's really great to do in-depth discussion, but sometimes it's fun just to kind of go crazy with things. Um, so that's where I threw a few ideas at you, and one of them was 40 companions in 40 minutes. <laughs> um, and that's to say, is again, is we don't need to go into a, a lengthy discussion of uh, whether Victoria was better than Zoe, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But it's just going to be basically the both of us taking one minute per companion, uh, give or take. Um, there's a few that we've paired off naturally. But, uh, you know, again, it's just going to be discussing whether we like the companion or not. And uh, just maybe one or two quick thoughts about how they interact with the Doctor, or how they reflect the era. And we've also decided to do uh, just a quick rating, just scale of 1 to 10. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to point out this is how we appreciate the companion, not their appearance. <laughs> um, this is this is not the old FASA role-playing game or FASA role-playing game, which, uh, just quick aside, I used to get so frustrated because every character was uh, either attractive or striking. Yeah. Um, and I think every character hit the mark, except for Turlo, who is just average. Oh. Uh, poor Mark Strickson. I can only assume they did not see Planet of Fire. Yes. Uh, but... But anyway, uh, yeah, so it's again is <laughs> so we're not we're not ranking attractiveness, we're not anything like that. We're just saying, you know, is how do we just you know, quick subjective, you know, I like this or I don't, and here's about the range I do it. Um, I can say for myself, I've not really prepared a list, uh, aside from the actual list of companions we're doing chronologically. Mm-hmm. So again, a lot of this is gonna be off the cuff. It will not be scientific. <laughs> and for this list, uh, listeners, I've got to say, I've cut out some of the more useless companions like Adam from New Who and Katarina from the classic era. Um, I've also combined some uh, others into a single entry, as Mike has alluded to. So Barbara and Ian are together naturally and Polly and Ben and so on like that. Um, there are some companions that are a bit tenuous, like Nefertiti or Sarah Kingdom. I've ignored them. I've also ignored a swathe of audio companions. Sorry, Mike, they're just not in here. <laughs> it's it's again i mean we've already got a lot on our plate and it's going to be a very small portion of our audience who'll be familiar with some if not all those characters so it makes the most sense to go this route yeah and of course a ton of characters from uh the the virgin new adventures and the eighth doctor adventures and things like that the novels they're they're not in here either it's it's 40 companions that i think most people will recognize 
Yeah. And also, just to kind of throw this out, we're not discussing anything about comic book appearances, novel appearances, big finish appearances, etc., convention appearances. Uh, this is just based off of what was televised. Um, you know, and again, for some of the earlier companions, that's going to be a little more spotty due to missing episodes. But we wanted to try to keep it as what's easily accessible for everyone. Um there might be some call-outs on occasion to extended universe stuff, but for the most part, we're going to try to keep it with what was televised. Yeah, let's not go off into what Stephen Taylor does afterwards and the kids he has and <laughs> things like this, you know. Uh, let's just not go down that rabbit hole. Well, the obvious place to start with is going to be Susan Foreman, uh, Susan Campbell, whatever you want to call her. <laughs> but again, the, f- the first Doctor's granddaughter. So, Rob, how do you feel? Yeah, look, uh, Mike, she's quirky and interesting in the first episode, An Unearthly Child. She certainly has some moments in her later episodes, but she never really takes off for me. She's an interesting idea, but I'm just not that into her. Yeah, so I I would agree, really. Um, I would go as far as Edge of Destruction. I think the first three stories, uh, she's a really interesting, unique character. And then from every progressive story after that, she just diminishes into being just a kind of a generic teenager character. Um, Again, there's occasional things where she talks about future technology or future events, but uh, she just really loses everything that made her unique. Mm -hmm. And it's too bad because those first three episodes, I felt like there was so much potential. Yeah, I agree. If I was to give a number score, I would say probably 6 out of 10. Uh, where would you land on that? I'd go with 5. 5. Wow, even a little lower. So, mm. yeah. You know, again, it's it's, it's difficult because we're going to have characters on this list who had potential, mm. but maybe never re- reached that potential for a variety of reasons. Uh, again, and that's not on Carol Ann Ford. It's more on what she was given to work with. Yeah, I agree. So. Well, uh, next next we have Barbara Wright and Ian Chesterton, uh, Twitch heroes. And, uh, <laughs> you know, with those two, I, I think that they're just both more than any other companions on this list at least till we get to the modern series they're not just companions they're also co-stars they are leads of the show and i think that they both brought something very interesting and unique to the series um ian could be intelligent he could also be the man of action um barbara was was very clever she had uh really cerebral insights and she was not afraid to stand up to the doctor so i i think with both of them uh they just added so much to the series and for it to continue you couldn't have kept at that pace mm. but i think that both of them were incredibly strong yeah a classic pairing for me although i never enjoyed barbara quite as much as ian maybe it was because she was more uh. cerebral she was the voice of reason maybe i felt she was holding the adventures back you know i just wanted them to get out there and really rip in but she ah she was sort of holding them back sometimes uh, yeah you know it and just quick fun fact she was almost taken off the show but instead when caroline ford decided to leave they decided to keep barbara mm, yeah i yeah. believe so so yeah so uh any idea as far as scores on those two yeah eight out of ten for me wow um i'm actually this is going to be there's not going to be many of these but i'm going 10 out of 10 for both barbara and ian and i can understand that quite right I just I think that when you watch those first the first season and a half, I think that as wonderful as Hartnell is, I think they're really the ones who carry so much of it and made the show successful. So, so uh, I'll let you start out. Uh, next, we come to Vicky of uh, no no absolutely confirmed last name, but Vicky. <laughs> Vicky. Vicky's probably Susan done right. I think she's a young girl for the Doctor to dote on. But she's better acted than than Susan, and she's given more interesting things to do. I quite like her. I, I think Vicky's great. 
I, I agree completely. Um, again, they took that core concept. Um, it's a girl from the future instead of a girl from wherever the doctor's from. Uh, but again, you had this young woman who uh, had all this future knowledge and she would take cracks at Barbara and Ian. She was very clever, very smart. Um, and just the best part is she was just so sly. She mm. was just always up to something. And especially with Hartnell's doctor, that's wonderful. Yeah. Just scenes of the two of them giggling. Um, she is another one of just my favorite companions from any era of the series. Uh, I would give score-wise a 9 out of 10. And uh, the only reason I'm really knocking her at all is because her departure in The Myth Makers makes no sense. <laughs> Fair enough. It's probably a 7.5 for me. Okay. So mm-hmm. I'll be curious to see down the line when, when we start getting to those really high digits. But but I think yeah. that's a fair rating. Yeah. So And then uh, kind of the one who gets most paired off when you hear about the name Vicky would be uh, Steven Taylor. And that's a tough one. I'll let you start because I'm just I'm really almost struggling with this one. Oh, no struggle here at all for me. Probably my favorite 60s male companion, especially when he has a beard. Folks, I love the beard. <laughs> a beard and a panda. Yeah, that's it. I, I like his background. I like his attitude. He's another dude from the future. I think he was a tad edgier than Ian, but cut from the same cloth. He could do the action stuff, but he just had that little bit of edge to him. Oh, gosh, I really like Stephen. He's a 8.5 out of 10 for me. That's awesome. I, I really love what Peter Purvis brings to the role. Uh, even when he's given weak material, he still finds a way to make it work, even though he was still relatively new to acting, from what I understand. And yes. uh, I, I appreciate what Stephen brings to the stories, and there's a skepticism about that character that's that's kind of almost to a point of ridiculousness, and I love that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, again, as it's this man from the future surprised by robots and things and just, uh, <laughs> you know, and, but I like that, especially because it allows Vicky to kind of take shots at him and just, it's, it's just a wonderful dynamic. Um, and I think especially after Vicky leaves, he's really, again, he's one of those characters who carries the show forth. I'm going to go seven uh, and it's a little low. And that's just because I think during the era that follows uh, after the Dalek Mester plan, I think the character kind of loses his path a little bit. Mm, so fair enough. Yeah. But I almost want to give him an extra point for Morton Dill. So Morton, <laughs> Morton Dill, ten out of ten. You should. Uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, well, next one is uh, is Dodo Chaplet, Dorothea Chaplet, um, and this one's going to be pretty easy. Um, this is when they're basically taking that Susan Vicky ty- uh, type of character. They just kind of grafted her on. Um, she's just a teen from the modern era, and uh, that's about all you can really say about her. There is just nothing to this character, unfortunately, for me. Um, and I'm going to go two out of 10 just because, and I'm sorry, I know we're doing the numbers at the end, but I just, but it's just, there's nothing to this character. Um, and maybe you feel differently. I don't know. No, I, I don't really feel differently. She does get a bagging, especially for the way that she leaves the series. Uh, you know, that, that's what people will often uh, cite. And look, I just cited it there. Um, she's not the most interesting of companions. She doesn't do a hell of a lot to be hated, but she is just a nothing sort of character. So, look, I've probably got to sit around a three out of ten myself. <laughs> I think you could put her into any story and she would not add to it and she would not detract to it. Um, and I suppose there's something to be said for that. It's just if you're looking at characters who are your favorites, um, aside for the really cool dress from uh, from Celestial Toymaker, I just there's not really much cool going on. So, um, you know, maybe she had some good stuff in the books, but that's a discussion for another time. Mm, exactly. So, and then wrapping up this first Doctor era, uh, kind of blending over into the next era, uh, we have Polly and Ben Jackson. Yes, now I adore this couple, Mike, Polly especially. If if we're talking Stephen being my favourite male companion of the 60s, Polly's probably my favourite female companion of the 60s. 
that 60s London that she's plucked from, you know, it's only a few years ahead of Ian and Barbara, but it seems a lot later. It seems more modern and hip and interesting. I, I know it's like comparing a companion from 2015 to a companion from 2018. You know, it's like three years, but they just seem so different. And, oh, I love Polly. And and Ben, I think, is a good compliment to her. So I'd I'd go eight and a half for these two. Okay. Um, well, I definitely think that, that that gap in time you're mentioning is really interesting because I would say it's as different between Rose and Bill. I mean, that's how different that feels, almost 10 years apart. Um, again, there's just this this gap between, like you said, and I, I think, again, she's a very hip woman of her time. Um, she's she's so fun. I mean, just again, what she brings to the stories is really excellent. Um, you know, again, she's just got some snark. And again, I, I just appreciate what she brings. Um, you know, Ben, I have less of a feeling for, and I think this is where I need to watch some of those recons from the end of the th- season, well, I guess early season four, um, you know, really up till they leave. He's okay. I just don't have that real attachment to the character. Uh, mm-hmm. I would go eight out of 10 for Polly and maybe about a six out of 10 for Ben. Um, and again, that's needing to see more. That's fair enough. Well, that wraps up Hartnell. I'll take us through the second Doctor, if you like. Sounds great. Okay. Kicking off, uh, Jamie McCrimmon. Your thoughts first, Mike, on Jamie McCrimmon. <laughs> you know, Jamie is so ever-present. He's in all but one of the Second Doctor stories. And uh, again, he's a fun character. Uh, he plays off the Second Doctor so wonderfully. Um, it's interesting. It's not a character I have deep love for, but at the same time, I cannot disregard the fact that, I mean, he's just the perfect companion for the second doctor. Uh, I would probably go, Oh, sorry. I won't give the number yet, but uh, again, as I just, I think he's, he really adds to the entire era, that second half of the sixties. Absolutely. He's the all time classic companion. Does anyone really dislike him? He is perfectly paired with Pat, as you've just said, Uh, would he have done as well with other doctors? Maybe, maybe not. You know, we could probably do a whole episode on him and how he'd go with other doctors and, and things of that nature. That'd be quite interesting, actually. For me, you know, he's he's not actually like one of my top five companions, but I can see how important he is to the series and I can see how well he does on it. And I'll give him a nine out of ten. Yeah, I'd go eight. Again, as I, I think it's very there's very little that's wrong with the character. It's just one that doesn't quite speak to me the way that some others do. Fair enough. Which takes us to Victoria Waterfield. Oh, this is this is really tough. Again, just uh, I, I feel that she's another one of those characters that I'm not sure what she brings to a story. Um, again, maybe if she was paired off with with a doctor, a different doctor, or uh, a companion that was maybe more contemporary or for the future, there would be more to the character. Uh, but she just really feels like a tag along in most of the stories, and I just. It's very rare that I listen to a story or watch a story with her and say, like, wow, I, I'm really glad Victoria's here. Mm-hmm. Sadly, I've got to agree. I liked her more when I was younger, and that's because I was reading her in Target novels and reading about her in reference books like uh, Peter Haining's A Celebration and things like this. <laughs> and I was thinking, oh, she sounds really good. That sounds really interesting, you know. Um, but then the more I saw of her once we got to the video era and then the DVD era, the more I saw, the less I liked so uh, for me, she is like about a 5 out of 10. Wow, I'm going to feel really bad right now, but I would go as low as 2 out of 10 again. Mm. I just I just really just don't get the appeal of the character. Uh, fair enough. Let's motor on, because this is 40 companions in 40 minutes that you listen yes, to. Yes, yes. Um, 
<laughs> I don't know why I did that like a radio DJ. <laughs> Got um, to keep people up to where we're at. So That's yeah. exactly right. Uh, Colonel Lethbridge-Stewart, later to be Brigadier Lethbridge-Stewart, the Brigadier. Mike, lead us off. Uh, very difficult. Uh, I don't consider him a companion, but I understand that many people do. Um, I, I think that his relationship with the Doctor, the way it builds, um, again, I'm just looking at this across his career throughout the series. Um, I, I think that it's an amazing friendship. I think there's differences between the two. Um, and I think that what's what's amazing is Nicholas Courtney and the characters written can play off of any Doctor, and mm. it just feels right. So, uh, I, again, I wouldn't necessarily consider him a companion, but I think very highly of the character and the way he interacts with the Doctor. Okay. I think he's a stone-cold classic of a, of a character. I'm actually glad he didn't travel around with the Doctor that much. He got to fulfill a different sort of companion role um, and friend role to me, um, and I think that's just as valid as companions who do get around in the TARDIS. So I'm, I'm quite okay with calling him a companion. Uh, for me... I've got to give him a 9 out of 10. I, I can't go any lower. Well, despite what I said, I would give him a 10 out of 10. I, I just think that his relationship with the various Doctors throughout the series, uh, it's just wonderful. Uh, mm-hmm. It's just, it's one of the most amazing and special things about Doctor Who. So, again, it's even if I don't consider him a companion, I still think that that friendship is a 10 out of 10. I mean, it's just one of the most perfect things. So, yeah. Yeah. A- absolutely. And rounding out the second Doctor's era, Zoe Harriet. Uh, I, I like Zoe a lot. Um, I think she's a really fun character. Um, it, it's almost sort of that Spock data mold of character, you know, again, where she uh, she's very logical. She thinks of things mathematically. But every once in a while, you know, again, she, she has that fun streak as well. So, um, And she's a perfect foil for Jamie um, mm. in the way that Victoria, I don't think, was. Uh, you know, I think that Zoe just really plays off him perfectly as well as uh, it just feels like an endearing family at that point with the three of them. Absolutely. And I've always had a soft spot for Zoe. She gets to talk to people uh, in a similar way to the Doctor sometimes. It's extremely funny because they're not trying to be rude. They're simply smarter. And maybe they don't have their people skills down, you know, quite as much. (laughs) You know, maybe it's a bit Sheldon Cooper from the Big Bang Theory or something, you know, to to give a modern reference. Um, Zoe's just great. Um, If I had to give her a score, I'd be giving Zoe a, a solid eight and a half. I'm going to go with eight. I'm going to put her even with Jamie, even though I kind of appreciate the character a little more. Um, I, I think it's because of how great those characters work together. So eight out of ten is about the, the point where I would land there. So I'm going to go ahead and take us into the third Doctor era. Um, mm-hmm. And it starts with a really interesting uh, character, uh, one who didn't necessarily travel with the Doctor, and that's Liz Shaw. Yes. Now, Liz Shaw, I never quite got into Liz. I love the idea of her. I think the character idea is excellent. But on screen, Carol and John just never quite worked for me. And I still don't know why, you know, all these decades after I first saw her. But conceptually, I think Liz Shaw is fantastic. I think if I was reading Liz Shaw in a novel, wonderful. But just watching Carol and John on screen, I'm not quite sure. But I do like the characters. It's a tough one for me to score, but I won't score it yet until you have your say. Uh, I really like Liz Shaw. I think that she's the closest thing we've had to this point to an equal to the Doctor. Um, mm, I think that yeah. she's really able to hold her own, not just with the Doctor, but with the Brigadier. Um, she, she's a very intelligent scientist. Um, she's willing to take these really crazy things that are going and just process them in a manner that's still believable, but very competent and just very on the dot. Um, I, I like the way Carolyn John played the character. Um, and... 
I, I wish the character would have lasted longer, but I understand with the way the series was developing, it wouldn't have been a good fit for John Pertwee's Doctor. No, not at all. So what would you uh, score her? Um, I'm actually going to go 9 out of 10. I think for that season 7, she is just the exact right companion. So where would you land? Oh, I, I feel bad. I'm, I'm, I'm giving her a 6 no. out of 10. <laughs> But again, this this just falls to what's interesting about this is that, you know, we have these different thoughts and just different eras we love. Um, and I've, I have a feeling this next one might be interesting as well, because we go to Joe Grant. And whereas I very much appreciated what Liz Shaw was bringing to the show, Joe is a character that I understand why people love, but I've just never quite had that same attachment to. Katie Manning, amazing, wonderful, just so much fun. Uh, but the character of Joe just, um, I know that it was kind of a little more of a... I don't want to say goofy character, but just a character who was kind of accident prone and maybe not as competent as Liz Shaw, but mm. maybe had a bigger heart than Liz Shaw did, at least as the way it was portrayed. Um, and again, she was a great fit for that unit family. She was a great fit for the third doctor and just their relationship, um, the way she kind of softens him. Uh, but again, it's just, it's not a character I felt strongly about, but where did you land on Joe Grant? Yeah, look, she is the classic Pertwee companion. Like you, I'll echo that she is lovely in real life in terms of Katie Manning. But similar to Victoria, I read about her more first than I actually watched her. And I thought, she sounds really interesting. But the more I watched her, the more, I'm going to use the word daft, the more daft she was. <laughs> and, <laughs> and kind of frustrating to watch at times. I still like her, though. And if I was going to give her a score, it would be a 7 out of 10. So I would go a six out of 10, but what's funny is when the character shows up in modern stuff, I get really excited. So I guess that's a bit <laughs> hypocritical of me. And I'll just say one more thing is that season nine through 11 is probably my least favorite era of the classic series. So again, as it's, and that's not because of her, that's just in general, it's just not an era that clicks with me. So again, mm -hmm. it's, you know, six out of 10, but I, I, I understand why people love that character. Uh, and speaking of loving characters, um, we come to the one that probably is towards the top of nearly every list, Sarah Jane Smith. Yeah, yeah, look, um, this is the companion of my childhood. Um, she was on screen around the time I was born, but with the repeat schedule here in Australia, uh, I got to see an awful lot of Sarah Jane Smith. You know, she's the archetypal Doctor Who companion for many. It's no wonder she got a TV series all those years later and made it a success, even though that seems absolutely bonkers to take a character from 40 <laughs> years ago who's now a much older woman and give her her own TV series and it's a success. How often does that happen? And that just shows what a character she was. Fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. And it was wonderful to see that, that they would take that chance and they would make it happen because she was just so dynamic in that series and just such a strong character. And and I think that's when I come to Sarah Jane Smith, I don't know that she always had the most interesting stories. Um, I think that maybe some of the material she was given at times was not that great. But Liz Sladen just had a way to bring that up, that she could just be Sarah Jane Smith and be that companion to the Doctor and, and just hold her own in these stories and I just have so much respect for the character. Um, in the first novels I ever read, very early on in my fandom, uh, it was Mandragora and uh, Seeds of Doom. So again, is that's one of the earliest characters I was introduced to. Um, and again, as soon as I saw her on scene, I was I, I understood completely why she was so praised. Um, you know, again, is it's this character that I think you have characters who are companions to the Doctor and characters who really get to be equals to a degree. And while she may not have been a Time Lord from Casterberus, whatever, blah, 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 I think that within most of her stories, she really was on that equal footing with the Doctor. 
So, uh, again, just really fantastic. And uh, how could you – just 10 out of 10. I mean, you know, whether you want to talk about the third Doctor era, fourth Doctor era, fifth Doctor story, uh, you know, again, her own series, just amazing. 10 out of 10. Yeah, and look, 10 out of 10 for me, and I think that's the first time we've agreed on one. That is. <laughs> Moving into the fourth Doctor era, I'll take this. Uh, Harry Sullivan. Tell us about Harry Sullivan, Mike. Um, You know, Harry Sullivan's one that I read about more than I ever saw. Mm. And I was familiar with the name Ian Martyr, having written several of the Target books. Uh, By the time I finally got to the Harry stories, it was very late in my Who watching career, I guess. Uh, And again, I think he's interesting. Um, I think that he's kind of a fun character, uh, definitely a bit daft. You know, and it's interesting because it kind of gives the fourth doctor somebody to punch down at, whereas with Sarah, he's very kindly and friendly. Um, I I think he's interesting and he added something to those season 12 stories. But I agree with the idea that it wasn't a character that needed to stick around long term. Okay, Uh, my thoughts on Harry. I think he's massively underrated. I understand why he was underused, though, and then shuffled out of the series in a really unsentimental way. I could still see a role for him. I think he's brilliantly played by Ian Marta. And uh, I would have actually liked to have seen him go on. So I'll throw my score out there. It's not a super high score, but it, I, I do appreciate him very much. It's a 7 out of 10 for me. I'd go a little lower at 6 out of 10. Um, and again, I, I think that given more time, uh, there may have been more fondness for the character on my part. Mm, fair enough. Leela. I'll say that aside from Sarah Jane, this is the other companion of my youth. This was the other companion who was most on the television, you know, 52 weeks of the year uh, for me on the ABC. I love the way she was so different to every other companion I'd seen. Um, her departure's a bit weird and unrealistic. Um, but putting that <laughs> aside, she's she's not bad at all. Yeah, I mean, spoilers, there's a reason why Andred's not in the Gallifrey series. Uh, just, it's, <laughs> nobody buys that. Um, yeah, I, again, she was very, she was extremely different. Um, I mean, the closest match would have been Jamie, and completely different character. Uh, just, again, is she's she's very intelligent, despite being portrayed as a quote-unquote savage throughout much of it. And, uh, again, is she's just extremely intelligent. She challenges the doctors in, in ways that's perfect for the Tom Baker character, Um and and Louise Jameson just she brings such a weight to her acting um, that even when she's given really loopy ridiculous stuff to play as Leela, uh, she brings conviction to it. Um, so again, it's, uh, I wouldn't say quite as high as some of the others, but a character I have a lot of respect for and just really appreciate. And your score? Eight out of ten. Eight out of ten for me too. So second okay, snap. It's second, yeah, second snap. So K <laughs> nine is next. Um, I'll let you start on this one. I think, Mike. Well, I'm, I'm a little stunned here because, uh, as Peter Haining would tell us, there's K91 and K92. Uh, but we're just, not going just... that granular. <laughs> so K9 is an interesting character. Um, K9 to me falls in the same category as the Sonic Screwdriver, and by that I mean that it's something that you know its kids are going to love. It's a very unique visual design. It's a very interesting element. But when you get down to it, I don't know that he really plays well in most stories. Mm. Um, again, I understand why he was there. It was kind of the R2-D2 thing. Uh, you know, again, it's just cute robot character, allows for jokes. So I, I like K-9 being there, but honestly, when K-9 gets shooed off in a story, I don't mind at all. Yeah, I was never a fan of K-9. Not as a kid, not as an adult. Um, even as a kid, I thought it was a really cheesy concept. You know, first of all, the name, hello, and, <laughs> and just 
just the whole thing. Uh, you know, kids were meant to love him. I didn't love him. Maybe I was a weird kid. I don't know. Um, you know, answers on a postcard. Uh, it, it just didn't work well for me on screen. I never found him cute or anything. And as you say, if he's pushed out of a story, hey, happy days. So I'll, I'll throw a score out here. I'm giving him a 5 out of 10. Yeah, five. Uh, let's just snap on that. That's that's perfect. Um, you know, again, if they'd have kept him just sitting around the TARDIS and just having some jokey scenes every once in a while, that would have been perfect for me. Yeah. All right, let's move into the first Romana. We're not going to do K9 1 and 2, but we will do Romana 1 and 2. <laughs> I'll, I'll go first here, Mike, and say um, if we were playing a game of which classic era companion you would marry... For me, it would be Mary Tamas Romana. She's got beauty and brains. Oh, my God. I'd be her companion if she went and nicked a TARDIS. Uh, Mike, hands down. <laughs> wow. Um, I, I think she's an interesting character. Um, again, as I like that she brings something different than we've seen before, uh, kind of a standoffishness with the Doctor. Again, she's very book smart. The Doctor is very... Or sorry, yeah, so she's book smart. I wouldn't say the Doctor's street smart. He's just willing to wing it and, and play things out as they go. Um, so again, she's an interesting foil to the Doctor. Um, I will, We'll get to this with the next Romana, but again, she's probably not my favorite, uh, but I, I appreciated what she brings to the show, and I think that she was a perfect match for that uh, season 16, Kita time. I think she was really well done there. Yeah, look, if you go back through my life and look at people I've had relationships with or even just really good friendships with who are, who are female, they generally have this personality type. So for me, <laughs> for me, it's a solid 8 out of 10. I love seeing her on screen. I'm going to go 7 out of 10, uh, but I, I'm kind of on the fence. So, so yeah, I would say 7 out of 10. Okay. Well, let's jump into the second Romana now. Uh, Mike, uh, I'll let you lead off. I wouldn't go as far as to say Mary, uh, but Romana, <laughs> Romana to uh, Lala Ward, I mean, to me, she has that exact same quality as Tom Baker has. Maybe not the alienist, but there's just something so magnetic about the way she plays that character um, and the way at times she'll underplay it. Uh, at times she's she's very commanding. Um, it's again, it just there's so much joy to that character, uh, especially season 17. But I like the way it comes out in season 18 as well, where she's just more straightforward. Uh, but again, just such a strong character. And uh, wow, <laughs> I'm almost at a loss for words. But what do you think about Romana too? Well, I, I can see why the lighter and brighter second Romana appeals to audiences, but I, I still stick with the original. It's just like ABBA, Mike. I preferred Frida <laughs> over Agnetha. <laughs> and I prefer you know, Mary over Lala. I know who Abba is, but unfortunately, uh, I can't. Uh, I can't really differentiate between them. Uh, yeah. Oh no. So, but I'm sorry. Uh, but no. But again, it's just. And also for me is I believe I saw season 17 before 16. So again, there's that thing of just you know your first Doctor is your favorite. First Romana was my favorite. So which is the second Romana? But yeah. So. <laughs> That's all right. What's your score? Ten out of ten. Ten out of ten for me. It's a seven. Okay, so we kind of flipped that around somewhat. So, we did, yeah. we did. Which brings us to Adric. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> now, look, I'll, I'll go first here because I think I know your thoughts. Adric, to me, is not annoying, uh, not as annoying as many make out. I guess it depends on how you view him. To me, he's kind of like Anakin Skywalker. You can view him as whiny and annoying, or you can see that that's the character and that's why he's interesting. You know, there are sort of two ways to see a character like Adric or a character like Anakin Skywalker. Uh, and to me, he's not one of my favourite companions, but I, I'm not going to be giving him a, a hellishly low mark here either. 
So, uh, tale of two stories for me with Adric. I love Adric in season 18. I love his relationship with the Romano, with the Doctor. Um, I appreciate every story he's a part of, and I think he brings something to those stories. Um, I think the biggest problem is that uh, he just doesn't play well with the other characters he inherits later, um, especially Tegan. I think that when you match up Adric and Tegan, it's just combustible and it doesn't work well. There's times that that kind of, uh, that kind of antagonism or whatever you want to call it, um, that friction really works. But I think with those two, it's, it's more off-putting. So again, mm. um, I, I just I feel like it fails both characters. So um, yeah, it's, that's a tough call. Um, but again, I appreciate the first half. Uh, second half, just dread. Uh, I really dread that first several episodes of season 19. Okay, so. your score? Five out of ten. Five out of ten. Um, snap, actually. <laughs> Which to me wasn't a hellishly low score. No, I, you know, and again, I might go eight and three if I was to break it between the two seasons. So that's where I just had to kind of find that middle ground. Fair enough. Certainly not the next character we saw on screen, but I'm going to say the next companion is Tegan Javanka. Yeah, we're, we're breaking pattern with Peter Haining again, but uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> which again, she didn't show up first, but she joined first. So yes, Correct. Um, Tegan is interesting. Um, she's a very vociferous character. Um, you know, I mean, that's of course one of the first things people say is she's a very loud character. Um, I think there's a really interesting humanity to her character and the way she interacts with people. Uh, she has a very strong sense of justice. Um, I think that the constant nagging about wanting to go home, oh God, I shouldn't use the word nagging, but just again, just <laughs> constantly begging the doctor, like, I want to go home. I don't like this. I want to go home. After a certain point, it got very dreadful. Um, mm. And I think that was very frustrating for me with the character. Uh, but aside from that, I think for the most part, after Adric had left, I really appreciated the character. Okay. Tegan, for me, in the 80s, I would regularly say that she was my favorite companion. Um, maybe I was being a bit parochial because she was the only Australian on the <laughs> on the cast. But I liked the way she'd stand up to Davo and, and how she generally didn't want to be there, which is something you've touched on. But to me, that made her quite different. She wasn't someone you know, hanging off the doctor's every word. She wasn't someone excited to be there. I, I kind of found it quite amusing that she always wanted to go home and, and she'd just be like, oh, you know, she'd be the one almost like Janet Fielding in real life when you see her doing our commentaries <laughs> and such, you know. Um, I I find her quite entertaining and I'm going to throw a 7 out of 10 at her. Uh, snap, 7 out of 10. Um, okay. And I didn't mention that, but you're right. She's a perfect foil for the fifth doctor. Uh, yes. because again a more passive doctor a more aggressive companion it's a nice dynamic and i don't think we've seen it at least not in a long time yeah that's right which brings us to nissa of track and uh i'll go here and say look to my mind she's very very similar to liz shaw at least for me she's smart she's scientific she's actually even a bit aristocratic conceptually i find that very interesting uh i think she plays extremely well with davo but I never got into her character, Mike. How about you? Uh, agreed. It's it's a great conceptual idea for a character. Uh, as written, I don't think it came across as strongly. Um, I understand why Peter wanted her to stay uh, rather than Tegan. But again, as I think that would have been a very questionable choice. Um, and again, not to go too far off, off too far off script, but even some of those big finish stories where it's the two of them there's just not a real dynamic nature to that relationship so again um it's interesting it's nice to see this character who's not of earth who has these advanced scientific abilities things like that but 
again, is I just feel like there wasn't a strong enough personality attached to that character. Very passive. Yeah, I don't think I've heard one of their audios together, but I can imagine it's something like, this is a lovely planet. Yes, it is. You're great. (laughs) No, you're great. Oh, isn't this lovely? Well, to to give you an idea, my favorite with the two is where there's evil clones of both of them. So uh, basically, it's you have evil, evil, evil doctor and even evil Nissa lead the story. So uh, yeah, it's it's almost like you have to invert that for me to appreciate it. I suppose. (laughs) Which story Uh, is that? I will. uh, It's it's a Dalek two parter. I can't think of the name off the top of my head. I want to say it's something like Alien Heart Dalek Soul. Um, It's two stories that are lightly linked. It came out last year. Okay. uh, yeah, I'll, I'll shoot you that after the show so we can okay. include it in notes if we need to. But uh, again, it's it's very interesting because almost like these two characters, the first half with the regular versions, not so hot. Second version, just a cracking story. Fantastic. So there you go. <laughs> Take us through well, Davo. Yeah, so Davo. Uh, and just a reminder for everyone, you're listening to 40 Companions in 40 Minutes. <laughs> very good. We're now with the Fifth Doctor era, and we will be starting out with the aforementioned Vizsler Turlo. Yes. I hated him at first, Mike. Um, <laughs> in, in the character sense of the word, he was going to do Davo harm. You know, couldn't Davo see it? This kid was evil. So in that sense, Mark Strickson was absolutely nailing the character. Um, and then once he mellowed out and didn't have the Black Guardian messing with him, I, I, I liked the character, again, in the character sense. Yeah, that's me with Turlo. So, yeah, it's interesting. I was watching Modern Undead the other day just by chance. I just decided to throw that one on. And he was really despicable in that story. And I do like those first few stories where he's kind of evil. He's very conflicted and where he comes to. Um, Kind of almost a Susan thing, though, is I feel like once you end that Black Guardian story with him, I feel like he loses a lot of his appeal. Um, You know, he's, he's a little cowardly. He's maybe not as adventurous as some of the other companions we've seen. Um, I still like the later Turlo stories, but I wish that they'd maybe done more with the character material-wise. Fair enough. What would you mark it? Oh, gosh. I would go 6 out of 10. Okay. 7 for me. 7. Okay. Well, uh, next we come up with Chameleon, who's another kind of interesting one. Uh, You know, again, Chameleon's an interesting situation where the, the robot was supposed to be a recurring character who could change shape. But the, the puppeteer who originally designed and controlled the robot, from my understanding, passed away during mm. the filming of The King's Demons or shortly after. So uh, basically was sidelined between The King's Demons all the way out through Planet of Fire. It's an interesting idea. It's really coming out of that Star Wars era. I could see the appeal of having a robot on the TARDIS. Uh, but unfortunately, the idea of having people's wills control the character just uh, it just would have gotten really tired, I think. How do you feel about Chameleon? Yeah, look, I think he's a fascinating idea as well. Um, To this day, I don't know why they didn't just have him spin up a human persona that he (laughs) would mostly appear as, you know, so they didn't actually need to do the robot work, uh, even if the uh, the, the puppeteer was was still alive and such. I'm I'm surprised they didn't think, well, let's, let's have him appear as a human, and then they just hire a new human companion, and that's Chameleon. You know, and then in certain stories, maybe he could become different people and and such. Um, That could be quite an interesting um, plot point in stories. I can see how they could have done so much more with him, and they just didn't for some reason. You know, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to come up with some of this stuff, uh, and they didn't do any of it. Um, Disappointing. (laughs) Very disappointing. So so where would you score Chameleon? Yeah, look, for me, it's a 5 out of 10, but so much potential. 
Um, you know, I have to go with what we got on screen, and that was extremely little. I'm going to have to go with one out of ten, uh, and this is probably <laughs> the only one I'm going to hand out. Uh, but again, it's just because I feel like the potential never matched what we received on screen. Yeah, so. yeah. Uh, and that brings us to another one that's going to be interesting. Uh, she kind of crosses over with eras, and that's uh, Perpigillium Perry Brown. Mm. And where would you? What are your thoughts on Perry? And again, this might be another tale of two stories kind of thing. So. Yeah, look, bratty, whiny, and American. Uh, look, I know Nicola Bryant's British, but let's just go <laughs> with the American. Um, oh my God, what was the series coming to? I was thinking as a you know ten year old or eleven year old, whatever. <laughs> I was, we can't have Americans in the show, Mike. This was not on. <laughs> fine to have Tegan. She's from Australia. We still have the Union Jack on our flag. That's fine. But an American, in quotation marks, again, she's British. Um, <laughs> look, she works well with Dave, though. I think a season of them would have actually worked really well together. But once we get to that first season of Colin and they just fight all the time, oh, my God. And then when we get to the second season of Colin, they seem to be getting on. But then, you know, she has a head chopped off and a new brain squished in or whatever it was. And it's just horrible again. So mm, it's really hard. I, I think there was potential there for her, particularly being a botanist, that she could have used that skill more on television. <laughs> I, I, I'm at a loss. Uh, your thoughts? Well- you know, it's interesting you mention that because what's the first story after Perry leaves? Terror of the Vervoids about <sighs> plant people. So, I mean, it's just such a missed opportunity. Uh, again, is I think this is another character where there's some in- interesting concept there. Um, I just, I struggle with that entire season 22 era. Um, I think uh, the sixth Doctor is unlikable. I think that that just, the pairing of those two does not work. Again, like you said, is I think within those two stories that she shows up in in uh, season 21, I think that there's some strength there. Uh, but again, as I just think that the conflicting nature of the two characters makes season 22 a struggle. Um, those two stories she was in with season 23, um, the two Trial of the Time Lord stories, I think that the relationship had mellowed out there a lot. And I think she was able to bring more to those stories, even if it wasn't necessarily in terms of you know being a botanist or being a student or what have you. But it, it seemed like she was just a more settled in companion and offered more at that point. But again, uh, just potential versus reality is a real struggle on this one. Um, so if I was to give her a score, I would probably go five out of 10. Okay. I'm pretty close. It's a six from me. Okay. Which brings us ironically to the sixth doctor. Mel Bush is the only companion we'll be looking at here. Mike, do you want to talk to us about Mel Bush? Oh, I do. Uh, this is where everybody can just tune out now because you are not going to agree with me. Um, season 24 is one of my all-time favorite series. Um, it is at the peak of my fandom when watching the classic series. Um, not that I didn't enjoy what came after, but to me, uh, that was just the most massive rush of excitement. It was the first new season I saw, and uh, and I thought Mel was just really fun. I thought she was such a neat character. Um, again, there's there's not much there. I mean, I have to be honest. It's again, you know, she's a computer programmer who never touches computers. Um, you know, she shows up in the botany episode, but <laughs> again, is it's just. I, I just think that the way she played off of Colin was fantastic, especially after that just really dark season that we had before, um, and even some of the darkness of the trial. I like the optimism she brought, mm. and I think that she played in a really fun fashion off of the the Seventh Doctor. So, again, I know that this is a character that's very polarizing, and most people do not like. 
uh, I love her. I think she's great. So where do you land? Okay. Well, look, her arrival was just so confusing. I couldn't quite <laughs> latch on to it at first. You know, I couldn't figure out how she'd arrive from the future, but then she was going <laughs> off with the present doctor. So how did they actually meet in the future if they're already traveling now in the past? Uh, it just used to do my head in. I'm sure there's a very clever explanation for it. But there is. Well, but go ahead. <laughs> you, you can tell me after the show because to sure, an 11 year old, sure. I couldn't figure it out. And look, she was sort of played like a children's television presenter. Ah, oh, come on, duck. Ah, you know. And I was like, oh, she just feels so incredibly unrealistic. I have never met someone like this in my life. <laughs> I, 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 oh, uh, four out of 10. So uh, I'm I'm gonna double you. I'm gonna go eight out of ten, and I realize I am ridiculous. Uh, just two quick <laughs> items I'll throw in is uh, very quickly um, in the Ultimate Foe novelization by Pip and Jane Baker. Perhaps the one thing they did right in their career, uh, they wrote it that the Doctor basically said, "Mel, I have to leave. I'll come back and pick you up when the time is right." So he departs. You see the TARDIS dematerialize. He goes off. He has his adventures. He meets uh, Grant and he meets Charlie Pollard and all these different people he meets along the way. And then the TARDIS rematerializes a few seconds later and he picks Mel up. So he's already met Mel. They've gone through their adventures. Mel's been plucked from time. And then he knows, oh, this is when I need to go back and get her now. Uh. So it's kind of a little goofy because then he has foreknowledge. But again, is at least it made a little bit more sense. If so. only I'd known that in 1980, whatever it was. <laughs> It, you know, I, I read most of those books before I saw the episode, so it helped. Mm. Um, and speaking of a character who shows up in a lot of books we're not talking about, it's we're going to come to the Seventh Doctor era and uh, a lot of people's favorite, which is Ace. Yes. Uh, I'll start by saying I loved her on debut. I loved her throughout the series. It didn't hurt that 13 and 14-year-old me had a serious crush on Sophie Aldred. I'll just come out and say that. And the fact I got to interview her many years later didn't, didn't hurt either. <laughs> but she was way more than that. Um, especially in contrast to Mel, I just found her so real, you know. And, and, and I know that she does some things that people might roll their eyes at, you know, like the way she jumps in the air and says, Ace, and punches the air. And who does that, you know. But still, to me, it was so much more real than Mel's children's TV presenter type persona. I just thought she was great. Wonderful. You know, I mean, it's 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 another one of those characters who's just such a strong match for the Doctor. Uh, I I think that again, what she brought, especially being a fairly new actress, I think she did a really great job with it. Um, she plays off the Seventh Doctor, and she's again, it goes back to that almost what we said with Ian and Barbara. Again, this is a character who's a co lead. You know, he may be the one manipulating things, but she's such a core component of those stories. And I don't know that there's another companion you could put into those stories and have the same outcome. Um, and trust me, I've tried because I love Ray from Tilta and the Bannerman, who is almost a companion. But again, it's just it, those stories are about Ace and wonderfully so. And almost every single one of those stories is a hit and just an incredibly strong companion. Um, so I would go uh, 10 out of 10. I mean, I, I don't see how anybody could go less unless they just really get annoyed by all the yelling and, and silly childish insult stuff. But well, where I've do you land? I've gone with a nine out of ten, so I am going less, but not by much. No, no, no. But but again, I mean, it's it's again, it's it's a, it's a character that most people greatly appreciate. So I yes. mean, again, even if not ten out of ten, it's a high score. So some people might go eight out of ten. Absolutely. Yeah. Which brings us to the eighth Doctor era. We're looking at Grace Holloway, Mike. Uh, this is this is another one where I know she was. There was an intention to bring her back if the series went ahead. Um, I, I felt that both Changley and Grace Holloway were just. 
oh gosh, they they were just very generic. I, I don't feel like that they brought anything to it, and I don't think that the script gave them much to work at. Um, I mean, again, the idea of having a surgeon as the doctor's companion is an interesting one. And uh, having, I guess she was American, <laughs> even though it was mm. filmed in Canada. But again, it's just, I, it just didn't feel like Doctor Who to me, like so many pieces of that movie. Um, and yeah. again, we're, we're, we're judging off one episode, but I just didn't think there was much there. Okay, yeah, look, I think she has her moments in the TVM, but they're few and far between. I was overjoyed when McGann didn't leave with her and that she wasn't going to be the real companion <laughs> if there was a series. I was I was punching the air and saying, Ace! Um, I just didn't gel with her at all, and it's a 4 out of 10 for me. Snap, 4 out of 10. Again, uh, could have gone higher depending on what happened later, but due to Fox having the rights, we will never find out. Mm. Now, at this point, Mike, I've got to say, we've just finished the classic era and we've hit our 40 minutes. <laughs> Bear with us, listeners. Uh, we'll try to snap this up a little bit. Um, I'm probably going to have less strong opinions on many of these or uh, just I might get kicked off the show on a few of these. So uh, thank, thank you for your patience. Take us into Eccleston, Mike. Sure thing. So uh, we start back with uh, the revived series under RTD with the Ninth Doctor. And the uh, first companion we see back is Rose Tyler. Yeah, look, now before Series 1 debuted, I was in serious doubt that Billy Piper was a good idea at all, uh, because we knew her in Australia as just a, a pop singer and not a very good one at that. It just seemed crazy. It just seemed ridiculous. Um, <laughs> but over the years, to me, she came to be just the ticket, a solid, realistic sort of companion. I I liked her a lot at the time, and I still like her now, even in comparison to what's come after. Yeah, she was definitely one of the most vivid and realistic companions. Um, again, as I know that people kind of see a through line to Ace, uh, but I think she was much more down to earth than the Ace character. Um, there's there's certain things about the Rose Tyler character that were very frustrating to me, and uh, that's the way that she treated Mickey later in their relationship. Um, just kind of the, the attitude she had towards her mom at times. Um, and just, again, as I know that the word that gets thrown around is with, uh, with both her and Tennant is uh, there was a lot of smugness in that second series, but... Um, you know, I, I guess the biggest thing I can point to is I'm just not a big fan of that particular romance in Doctor Who. Uh, mm. Again, as I always say, it's like I see why other people like it. It just didn't click for me. So by the time she was leaving at the end of Series 2, I was just very ready for that. Um, and again, uh, I think she did a tremendous job, especially as a novice actress. I mean, she brought so much to it. Uh, but the character herself, Rose Tyler, um, again, is not a character I'm ever excited to see again if she shows up. Yeah, see, I like rewatching that stuff because I know that the smugness is by design and I know that it's hubris and that there's a big fall coming. And, and to me, that, that makes it for me. You know, I know people can say, oh, look, well, while they're being smug, even though there's a fall coming, they're still being smug. But I, the payoff does it for me. I think, yeah, you know, you, you can't fly so high without, you know, crashing down eventually. Yeah. So score wise, I think I would go seven out of 10, um, you know, again, and I know that's going to be very low on most people's uh, chart, but it's just kind of where I land with the character. Yeah, look, it's a it's an eight for me, almost a seven and a half, actually. It's it's only just making eight. So we're not too far off. Yeah. And then that brings us to uh, one of the more interesting companions we've had throughout the series, which is Jack Harkness. Yes. Do you want to go first? 
I will go first. And again, as I think that Jack as written in season nine is one of my favorite characters, uh, not just in Doctor Who history, but just, well, I guess it would have to be, but just again, Doctor Who history. Uh, and again, as much as I've actually grown to love Torchwood over the years, I think that this is my favorite version of Captain Jack. Again, he's mortal. He's having fun. Um, you know, again, those first two stories he appears in and just kind of accepting his fate and having the computer make him a martini. Uh, just such a such a dashing character, but a little bit unscrupulous as well. Um, as well as the first explicitly queer character, I think we've had Doctor Who, uh, which is also definitely worth calling out. Uh, so again, just a big fan of the character in all of his iterations. Uh, but I really like the way he played out. Look, I, I'm not too far off that. I, I'm going to say I could never understand why Jack would get so panned by people. Look, to me, he's this larger-than-life, American-accented guy from the future <laughs> who will shag anything. It's it's a hilarious idea. It's played so well. He's fabulous at it. I just never got the hate for the character at all. I think he is wonderful i don't even mind when he becomes immortal and all that torchwood stuff as well i just think the jack harkness character is great and i'm gonna annoy half our listeners at least by saying 10 out of 10 wonderful again um i i think he almost falls in that brigadier category where he's so larger than life uh, or at least the way he relates to the series is i don't know that he could have been a companion much longer mm. um but i but i agree 10 out of 10 i mean i just think he adds so much to it uh, which uh, it's almost like we're judging. We're, we're trying to base these scores around. We can do cute segues, uh, but I'll hand it over to you now to do the 10th doctor. <laughs> All right. The 10th doctor. The first one we've got down here um, is Mickey Smith. Maybe I'll lead on this one and say, Mickey's the kind of person I wouldn't give much time to in real life. He's so possessive of Rose. He feels unreliable. He's not dodgy per se, but he's, he's not quite my cup of tea. Whenever he shows up, it's always like, oh, it's the ex-boyfriends here, you know. <laughs> this is awkward. Um, I, never, I never felt warm towards Mickey. Even when he turns up in the future and he's, he's a Dalek killer and all that sort of stuff and he's running around with Martha <laughs> and that was quite weird. Even then, I, the character's not doing it for me. Not that we see much of that side of him. Um, you know, it's a, a little cameo. I just can't get into Mickey at all. I'm sorry. Um, he's one of my favorite characters from the series. Uh, I don't say that as a companion. I just say as the development of the character and what he contributes. Um, and I think that there's that wonderful scene I cheered for in Rose uh, where he says something like, but I didn't do anything. And she, you know, exactly. And then she runs off and it's like, I cheered. I thought that was so funny and wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is really his role in most of series one is to show that he's not the doctor. And he he's that life that she's left behind that's dull and boring and not very ambitious and things like that. Um, I appreciate that there's that scene and it, gosh, I can't even remember the episode where he kind of comes to the doctor and he says, I know you've invited me along, but I just can't, I'm not, I'm not brave enough for this life. Please, you know, please don't tell her. And that's Mm. where he kind of, the doctor snarks at him and says, you know, like, well, I don't want you to come anyway. And just, it was a really touching evolution between those two characters after so much disdain between them. And um, I thought it was fun having him in season two. Um, and the way he develops when he comes back at the end of uh, series four and things like that. And just, again, um, as a companion, maybe not the best, but I like the evolution of the character throughout the RTD era. Okay. What what score would you give it? I'm going to go six out of ten. Um, mm-hmm. And again, that's kind of a, it's a tough one to score, but I think six out of ten sounds about right. 
Oh, look, from the way you described it, I thought you would have gone higher because I've gone with a five. <laughs> a five out of ten for me. Again, I think judging him purely as a companion uh, makes it a little bit lower, uh, but he's one of my favorite characters from the series, definitely. Okay. So. Donna Noble. Mike, tell us about Donna Noble. Um, so uh, just uh, kind of, it's, it's a little tough because I almost feel like we're skipping ahead, but it makes sense to have her here. Uh, I really dislike season three. Um, so when it came time for season four, I was very down on Doctor Who and I didn't give it a fair chance. Mm-hmm. Um, when I've come back in time, I see that Donna and how she interacts with the 10th Doctor is just wonderful. Uh, one of the most truly human characters we've had. Again, her debut story was ridiculous, over the top. She was supposed to be the anti-Rose. Uh, but I think when she comes back, just the development of that character and the story, wonderful just uh, again and and this is one of those things again where you had a character actor or an actress who was more known for her comedic roles so you're bringing her back and then you're giving her this dramatic material to work with and she's just nailing it every single time so very very much appreciation for for uh, Donna Noble yeah look like Billy Piper I thought this could have been a disaster the first time I heard oh they're putting Catherine Catherine Tate in Doctor what are you serious um and look, by the end, we had a companion who wasn't in love with the Doctor and had a really sad ending, <laughs> and just all these things that I think are just great. Oh my God, she was just fantastic. I, I couldn't believe the, the difference between what I was thinking before she started and, and by the time she finished how I felt about her. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's almost like Cheryl Blossom in uh, Riverdale, but we won't go off on that <laughs> tangent. Um, <laughs> it's, it's just a wonderful character. I like her so much. Yeah, I, I think that it's wonderful when you don't expect something from a character and they completely surprise you. I think that's one of the best gifts fiction can give. Let's see, I'm not sure if I'm doing score first on this one, uh, but I will go ahead and call it out. Um, again, Donna Noble is just 10 out of 10. Uh, just one of the perfect characters for that era. Yeah, look, I'm going pretty high myself with a 9 out of 10. Fair enough. All right, that brings us to, and I know we sort of flipped these around a little, and, and we didn't do the Nissa thing this time. Yes, I, I realize that, Mike. Um, no, it's okay. It's it's. But again, it's it's some. It's just fun to do it anyway. So, yeah. yeah, Martha Jones. I'll I'll take lead here and say I, I really liked Martha from the start. Um, and a bit like John Barrowman playing Jack Harkness, I couldn't understand why she wasn't more popular. Uh, because there seemed to be just this sense that she was nowhere near as popular as, say, Rose. Um, to me, she was smart, super smart, you know, she's a trainee doctor. Um, funny, caring, I thought she was a very good companion, and I just don't get why she wasn't better liked, uh, at least at the time. Yeah, you know, I think that there was such a vociferous fandom of Rose at that point that um, it wouldn't have mattered if Sarah Jane Smith came back and traveled for a year. I think a lot of people would not have been happy. Um, I think Martha is another character where the concept is fantastic. Um, I think the material was generally poor. I, I don't think it served the character well, especially the whole being in an unrequited relationship or unrequited love with the doctor. Um, so it's it's very troublesome to me because again, it's a character that I like. It's a character that I want to like even more. And I just feel like the show is holding the character back and just won't really give her a fair shot. Um, and especially knowing how talented Freema Adjaman is, uh, seeing her in other things like Sense8, mm. um, you know, again, as I just feel like it's such, it's probably one of the biggest disappointments of the modern series is to have a strong character with a strong actress and drop the ball like that. Mm. What mark would you give her? Um, I'm going to go seven out of 10. Um, mm-hmm. And it's only because, again, I think the material let the character down. That's fair. I'm very close by saying eight. Yeah. 
again, is, is um, you know, if, if I was just judging it solely on how much I wanted to like the character, uh, 9 or 10, obviously. So, yeah. yeah. All right. Look, let's round it out with a, a, a cheeky little one I've popped in here. <laughs> Wil- Wilfred Mott. <laughs> Tell us about Wilfred Mott. Just keeping it short, um, I enjoy when he shows up uh, throughout the, the Donna era. Uh, it's not a character I think would have worked on a recurring basis, but I think that with that one story, I don't appreciate the story, but I think that he is just the heart and soul of that. Um, and again, I mean, uh, his performance, uh, Bernard Cribbins' performance, and just the characters written make me cry every single time I watch it. Uh, mm. I just think it's incredibly well done. Yeah, look, I, I just had to include Wolf in, in our list. He doesn't get to do much with the Doctor, um, you know, overall. But as an example of how an older character can play alongside the Doctor, I think it's just perfect. You know, there there are a few examples of older characters with the Doctor. We're about to have one in the new series, of course. You know, Graham is an older character playing uh, alongside the Doctor. I, th- I think that sort of thing's great. I think he worked really well in the stories he was in. Obviously, there's some controversy over what stories they were. For me, a <laughs> 7 out of 10. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm going to go, uh, just judging him off that one story, I would go 9 out of 10. Um, and again, it's kind of a little bit of a blip. He wasn't a long-term companion, but I think that he just serves the Doctor so well in that story and just serves every... It's just so wonderful. Mm. Um, and, and again, it's, I, I wish that we would maybe get more companions in this mold. Uh, thinking back to Amelia Rumford from the Fourth Doctor era, but again, just... I think that even for a short run of three to four episodes, um, you know, we had even Evil and Smythe and Big Finish. Yes. Just having an older companion brings a dynamic that's really interesting, and we don't get to see it. Uh, so, not taking us too far off course, but because uh, we're already at about fifty-five minutes of forty minutes. But <laughs> yes, um, we're going to be going to the eleventh hour on this one. And uh, <laughs> segue, yes. we are now at the eleventh Doctor, and uh, the companion who accompanied him for the majority of his career, Amy Pond. Yeah, look, uh, I should have really liked Amy, but I didn't. Uh, The scene early on, one of the first few episodes, where she wants to have sex with the Doctor, even though it's her wedding night, that killed it for me. Stone dead. Absolutely killed the character for me. I can't explain it any better than that. Um, No matter how much I like some of the Amy-centric episodes, like Amy's Choice or The Girl Who Waited, two of my favourite Smithy stories, and they're very Amy-centric. But Amy herself, that whole scene and that whole sense that she would do that, something, a little trigger flicked inside me, and I was like, I can't like this person. Full stop. (laughs) Move on. Um, it was it was very difficult at times, um, especially because um, whereas say Mickey was kind of uh, not a character you would look up to or appreciate in a lot of the time, a time Rory was somebody you would like, so that mm. made those actions a little bit tougher, I think. Um, so I enjoy Amy. Um, I think she was a really fun companion. I think she was a really bold companion. I think she was a great antithesis to the Eleventh Doctor. Again, you've got Matt Smith doing his goofy giraffe thing. You need somebody who's just going to glare at him or shout at him and kind of put him back in place, almost in that Tegan mold. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the one thing, and this is going to be a recurring thing uh, through many of the, the Moffat companions, is outside of a set of traits, who is Amy? Yeah. You know, again, we hear she's a kissogram or whatever, and then she's kind of a model for a while, and she does travel guides for a while, and then she becomes a writer, but. I don't feel that there's a grounding in Earth the way that there is with the RTD companions. Um, again, and that's not to say it's necessarily a massive weakness, but it's just something where at times it feels more like this is a personality as opposed to this is a person. 
Um, yeah. But I would say I liked her much more than you did from the sound of things. Mm. Um, so if you were to give her a score, where would you land? Look, um, I'm trying to be fair, and I'm going to say six. I'd go a little higher. I would say seven. Um, and again, I think that she's also a companion that varies quite a bit from episode to episode. Um, I think she has some really strong stuff as well as some that are maybe not so strong. Very true. Um, you know, and again, it's it's hard to talk about Amy without bringing up her companion, who is Rory Williams, her husband or mm. boyfriend who becomes husband or doesn't exist or whatever it may be. <laughs> uh, and uh, just kind of taking the lead is I really love Rory. I think he's a, a fun character. Uh, he's a very passive character comparatively uh, to most companions we have. Um, you know, and again, I just I like what he brings to stories. Um, and I like that there are occasional moments like a good man goes to war or uh, even uh, the Big Bang where you see this character step up in this giant way. Um, again, it's, it's a character who doesn't necessarily want these adventures, but he loves his girlfriend or wife uh, so much um, that he's going to be by her side all the way. Um, mm. So again, it's, I, I appreciate him a lot, but he doesn't really exist outside of that with Amy. You know, it's those characters are very interlinked. So it's tough to judge them separately yeah well that's interesting based on what i'm going to say because i think rory could have been a really great companion in his own right rather than being sort of shackled to amy um you know he's this kind caring young man i think he could have been played gay i really do um and i think he could have been much more in his own right just chop off the the relationship with amy you know they, they don't know each other they might adventure together but they don't know each other and he's gay you know i think he could have been turned into such an interesting character again in his own right that just being shackled to amy and just being not much of a character outside of the stories yeah it sort of did him a disservice but i quite like him even with what we got i quite like him Okay. Well, I would I would have to match Amy's score for myself, which is seven out of ten. Uh, where would you Where would you put him at? I'd go uh, higher than Amy. I'm going with a seven. Okay. Well, mm. uh, interesting. And uh, so, rounding the family out, um, we have uh, <laughs> spoilers. Melody, yeah, Melody Pond, River Song, uh, and let's see. What do you think of River Song? I think River Song has a great start in the series. I think the library episodes are great i actually adore those library episodes but each reappearance of river song brings diminishing returns for me and i was actually so glad when the tv series was adamant that it was all over you know um (laughs) i think i think it was in dr mysterio where the doctor basically rules a line under river that's it and and nardole has to even explain who river was to um mr mysterio captain mysterio whatever it was called (laughs) But then Big Finish came into view and she started doing stuff with all the other doctors, which which I have actually ignored. Yeah, so look, oh, it's, no. it's, it's difficult. To me, I think she's a really great character and I think she started really well, but the more she showed up, the less I was kind of into her. Um, so what I think is interesting about the character is, is I, I think you've nailed something really important, which is when we first see her, she's very much an independent character. Um, she's a character with her own history, her own adventures, and her own competencies. And uh, again, as I hate to use the word strong female character because it's such an overused cliche term, but mm. but it's it's you have this character that really feels like she could be an equal to the doctor or she could be a character who has this brigadier type role in his life, a very potent character. 
Um, again, I mean, she just stormed on the scene in those episodes. You get the Weeping Angel episodes where, again, is um, she's this big adventurer and she knows more than the Doctor. So, again, as you have this character who's uh, really independent and has her own experiences and adventures. But then as you go into Series 6 and things just keep on snowballing as everything in her life is tied to the Doctor's companions or the Doctor or all these things. And, and the character loses a lot of her agency, in my view. Um, mm. Again, as it's much more of uh, that kind of almost second second tier or i guess i'm trying to think she almost takes a back seat to the doctor at that point she becomes the doctor's love interest as opposed to the doctor's equal and she's always kind of worried about him or doting over him and i understand why they went that route i just feel disappointed in it um so again i think she the way i would say it is i think she's a terrible companion i think she's a fantastic reoccurring character okay what score would you give her um, one is a companion, ten is an individual. So, wow, <laughs> just just a ridiculous range there. I, I would go a little higher. I would say four as a companion, or maybe five. She does add to the stories where she serves as a companion, but again, as I just think is is a character who's there participating. I think she's just so much stronger. So, um, I've kind of gone to some pretty big extremes. Where would you go? Uh, I'm I've gone with a six out of ten. So her and Amy on six, and, and Rory on seven. Yeah, and and one more thing I'll throw out is yes, uh, she does team up with some with some doctors in Big Finish, um, and they're very good stories. But let her do her own thing, Big Finish. Let her be on her own. So there you go. Um, but it's going to sell, so they will never do it. Yeah. Uh, Clara Oswald. <laughs> um, yeah. So Clara Oswald's a really interesting one to me uh, because again, is this is just almost three different versions of the character. Um, I think she was intriguing uh, in the first series she portrayed or she was part of. Um, and I think that mystery kind of fell flat in the end. Um, I think in her second season when she was a teacher, I think that was probably when she felt most grounded. Because, uh, again, it goes back to almost that Amy thing. It's like, well, she's kind of a nanny who's not good with technology and all this stuff. Uh, we don't really know who she is. You know, again, it's more about the mystery than about the character. Uh, series eight, she actually got to have a character. She had a life. She had the opportunity to develop this relationship with Danny Pink. Uh, there's this great scene where she says, no, I'm not going to leave with you. I want to stay with my people and not be the last of my species. Uh, terrible episode, great scene. Uh, so again, it's, uh, and then you go to series nine and she's just uh, kind of doing all this wild stuff. She's out of control. Uh, her death gets negated. Uh, I just, oh, such a mess. Uh, I can't even, I, I could spend an hour. So what do you think about Clara? Yeah, look, I'll, I'll try and keep it brief because, like you, we could we could do like a, like I said about Jamie, we could do a whole episode <laughs> on Clara. We could do a double episode on Clara. Yeah. Uh, to me, it's similar to River. I adored her at first, but the more she went on, I just didn't like where the character went. Um, I'm sure it was interesting for her to play, or maybe it was even interesting for some people to watch. But the, the just the longer it went on, the less interested I was in her, and the less. I even liked her as, as the hubris started to come in. And I could see how that was probably leading to have a, a, a fall. And she sort of has a fall in Face the Raven, but then she gets magicked back alive again. And mm, anyway, we won't go into that. Um, <laughs> to me, she could have just been a different sort of character. I I find it hard to just be brief on this because I, I did genuinely adore her at first. And when she popped up in that... She was in Victorian England, wasn't she? And it was the Great Intelligence, and it was yeah. That. So she, that was yeah. So she was uh, I forget her exact name at that point because uh, she was Oswald Oswald as a Dalek, 
Um, and then she was something along the, I forget the exact name, but yeah, she was the, the nanny during the Victorian era. And then we had real Clara finally showed up in the bells of St. John. That's right. My mistake. So at first we see her in, in that tight red dress with the utility belt and she's so quirky and fun and we weren't expecting her to pop up in Asylum of the Daleks. I thought she was great when she's that, you know, governess or whatever she is, barkeeper in that other story. <laughs> and she, I, I just recall when she pops up her head upside down through the top of the carriage and starts talking to the doctor. I'm like, oh my God, this, this is great. She is going to be fantastic. And then it's all just downhill. And I think it's just the storyline she gets given really. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think had she left in the Santa Claus episode, I would probably have much fonder memories of the character. Um, unfortunately, I just feel like that series nine it just kept dragging the character longer than she needed to go. And again, um, I appreciate the empowerment empowerment of Clara and me flying off in a TARDIS having adventures. Uh, but by that point, I was well past wanting the character to move on. And yeah, yeah. so, oh gosh, uh, just trying to think of, uh, I guess... Um, I'll, I'll let you take the lead on the score here. I'm just really struggling with this one. I've, I struggle with it too. I've got it down at a six. Um, I'm going to go with five, a little lower. Um, but again, mm. as this is one that could vary so much by season. So Absolutely. I think that last one really like, just drags things down. So, um, And then we've got another fun one. Um, and very quirky, uh, just a group, the Paternoster Gang. And mm. um, again, I think the Paternoster Gang is an interesting group of recurring characters. Uh, I think they add some fun comedy as well as some drama to the stories. Um, I think that it's very interesting because Vastra and Jenny, um, very cool characters. I mean, those are the kind of characters where I want to see a spinoff. I want to see more of them. Mm. Um, I think that uh, Strax, I'm getting mixed up. I want to say Drax, but Strax, (laughs) um, he's fun for comic relief. I don't know how sustainable that character is before it gets tired. Um, Yeah. So um, I I think that they're they're good and I enjoyed them in the stories they appeared in. Uh, What did you think of the Paternoster gang? I, I think I'm in a similar ballpark to you here, Mike. I think it's a great concept, and I think more people would probably like it if it wasn't for Strax. I mean, just play it as Vastra and her wife, you know? I mean, it's it's already meant to be Sherlock Holmes, you know? She's the great detective and all this sort of stuff. They don't really need Strax. Uh, and I think if Strax hadn't been there, I think the Paternoster gang would be much more warmly looked on because I do think it comes in for a fair bit of stick from, uh, from fans. So for me, uh, again, I'm trying to be fair. I think it's a 6 out of 10 again for me. Yeah, um, I think 6 out of 10 is fair. I think they they add to the stories. They don't add a lot, but they add a nice texture to it, and I think it's fun to have them around. And again, I think that anytime you introduce a comedy character into the series, um, there's a real range of what can happen there. Um, So I think it was mildly successful. Um, I think there was room for a lot more. But again, uh, I think that the more they showed up, maybe it wouldn't have been as good either. So I like that we did get that hard stop, and after deep breath, we didn't see them again. Yeah. Ah, yeah. I mean, six out of ten sounds good. Yeah. Okay. Well, look, another great unintentional segue there, Mike. Speaking of comedy characters, we kick off the Twelfth Doctor's era with Nadol. Do you want to take yeah. lead on Nadol? Um, I, I'm never even sure if I can pronounce it correctly. I've heard it so many ways. So, <laughs> <laughs> Nadol. Nadol. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, nice surprise. Um, a really lovely surprise. Again, I think many of us were cringing. Um, Matt Lucas, I didn't think was very funny in the River Song Christmas special. Um, I just was dreading him coming back, and I just didn't know what it was going to add. Um, but I think there was some interesting things that were done with that character. Um, again, kind of serving as the Doctor's conscience, but also maybe not being the most scrupulous character. 
Um, the one thing I'll call out was a little bit of a disappointment is during the last story of the era when Nardal departs and he kind of takes over this colony of people, he kind of talks about, oh, doctor, you know, I'm going to be running a black market. No. When did this happen? Um, <laughs> it feels like there was a Sabalom glitz sort of. This guy was supposed to be kind of a grifter. And I wish we'd have seen more of that throughout the series. I wish we'd have seen that, wait, is this guy entirely on the up and up or not? Um, he's not just a goofy sidekick. Um, he's kind of a clever, unscrupulous guy. So again, it's one of those things where I was impressed with what we got compared to what I expected. But there's so much more, I think, that was missed hearing that at the end. Mm. Yeah, look, to me, Nadal is the reverse of River and Clara because <laughs> I thought he was wasted in his first and likely to be only story. I thought, you know, he, Matt Lucas is a comedy talent. He's wasted here. This is terrible. Oh, my God. And then I was aghast that they were going to bring him back. I thought, this is insane. Moffat has lost the plot. You know, this this character was terrible. Now they're going to bring him back. Oh, jeez. But then I adored the crap out of him in series 10. I agree. They sort of dropped in little lines here and there that were never quite picked up on. It's almost like you could do a whole novel series or indeed Big Finish series on the adventures of (laughs) Nardole because he seems to have done all this other stuff. And we were never quite sure how much of him was robotic and, you know, nuts and bolts would fall off him and all sorts of stuff. But look, just in general terms, the way he was played, generally goofy, but then having those moments of seriousness, I just thought he was fantastic in series 10 i can't believe how much i disliked him at first i can't believe how much i thought it was a bad idea to bring him back but then how good he was so look if i had to throw a score on him that's a solid seven out of ten for me snap seven out of ten and finally companion (laughs) number 40 bill potts tell us about bill potts mike so Bill Potts is interesting. Um, we got that brief little three or four minute trailer uh, that aired during a sporting event. And um, she seemed kind of a bit goofy, kind of made some weird jokes. And again, low expectations going in, blown away. I think that she's one of the most human, if not the most human companion we've had. Um, definitely the most human era of the of the Moffat era. And I just think so many wonderful things about her. Um, Part of it's due to the characters written. Part of it's due to Pearl Mackey's just tremendous performance. Uh, But I believe Bill. I I buy into Bill. Um, I I think her reactions are just perfect. Again, you have somebody who is up for the adventure, but still has reasonable human reactions to some of the things she experiences, as well as just the compassion. Her -hmm. compassion during the pilot circles full circle to her penultimate story, and it's what saves everything. And... Again, that's what Doctor Who's about. So, brilliant. Uh, I'll pass it to you because I'm about to get choked up. Uh, that's nice because, I, look, I completely agree. I didn't know what to expect with with Bill. We knew when she was coming, even before we saw that little clip, that, oh, Doctor Who's getting a gay character. Okay, well, that's, that's all we know about. And then we'd see a picture and then we saw that little bit of video, which could go either way really didn't know what to expect but she was wonderful you know a really great companion very few missteps i did feel that tying her heavily into that puddle of space petrol that she saw for five (laughs) seconds at a bar uh didn't quite gel for me i know how it sort of came back and then you know heather saved the day and magicked everyone back alive again in a in a you know in a way uh and that tied everything together and that was thanks to bill but I still liked her a lot. I, I thought, yes, she was very human. Yes, she did react to things realistically. I think Pearl Mackey is a wonderful actress. I think a lot has to go down to her. Because I just, I can't believe that Moffat's writing changed that much from, 
you know, doing series after series after series <laughs> where it's where it's so similar. And then in what in this final series, he just suddenly starts writing great characters. I, so I think more <laughs> of it. Look, it's it's possible he wrote a bit better, but I think more of it has to be down to Pearl Mackey, surely, just really latching in and giving it this humanity and this feel. And yeah, she's just great. And I'm going to throw the score out there of nine out of ten. Um, again, I'm going to go full Monty, ten out of ten. Um, wow. I just I, I really I appreciate so much of what the character brought. Um, and and I do want to call it. You know, you mentioned that we knew in advance she was going to be uh, a gay character, a lesbian character, and really, I mean, we had Captain Jack, um, you know, who at times was played for laughs. Again, mm. it was that sort of I'll shag anything, ha ha ha, I'll kiss everybody. Um, but this is a point where we had a character who was was gay in a much more realistic fashion, and mm. um, and I appreciate the way it was played. It was a plot point at times. It was occasionally used for laughs. But no more so than any other relationship would have been. Yeah. So again, as having that normalized relationship was really important. And I do agree a little bit, though, is with the with the pilot that there could have been a little bit more with the development of the relationship with Heather. Uh, we got some montages, but again, it's just giving that a little more time to breathe before everything went space puddle. I, I think would have maybe strengthened the story both at that point and later on as well. Yeah, so. like why couldn't they have been a couple who'd been going out for six months? And we're totally into each other when Heather got sucked into the, the puddle of fuel. You know, uh, why? Why couldn't that have been the case? And then I'd, I'd believe much more in the relationship and why Heather would reach across the universe to, to rescue her and, and all of this. You know? <laughs> From a writer's perspective, um, not that I've written anything in a long time, mind you, but um, the one thing I can see is Heather, as well as uh, what she becomes, reflects something new and unknown and exciting. So it's the mm. development of that. Um, whereas I think if she was known, it would be a more personal story, but I think it would have lost some of that mystique and sort of uh, amazement at what's happening. So, uh, but again, that's me just spitballing because again, I just mm. want to call out, um, you know, again, this was Moffat writing an RTD character to some degree. Um, and again, I don't, I, I, and I don't like to break things down like that, but again, it's, it's like you even look at um, the way the Cartmel era handled Mel versus the way they handled Ace and things like that. And you just get these different sorts of characters that work in different eras. And again, um, you know, I used to do a draft podcast and it was just kind of mashing things up ridiculously, but it's interesting to ponder some of those things as, you know, as uh, how would, how would Romano have worked in the Hinchcliffe era? Would she have been more of a damsel in distress? Mm. Um, you know, uh, Ian and Barbara as modern companions. Um, you know, it's just these things where it's, you know, all these big what ifs, but, all of these characters are very much products, not just of their time, but of the creative team behind them. So many factors. And again, what I'm saying is blatantly obvious, but just uh, we haven't gone long enough, so I'm going to ramble. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, that does bring us to the end. Forty, We've done 40 companions, Mike. That's pretty yeah. good going. Uh, I don't know about 40 minutes, but, uh, you know, <laughs> I just I really didn't think we were going to have much to say about Dodo. I thought it was just going to be her name and a number and just move on. So, there yeah, you go. No, there's always something to say. Yeah. But as always, you know, thank for ha- thank you for having me back uh, during this guest uh, appearance. Uh, it's always great to be here. I'm a little rusty, but it's always fun. Yeah, no, look, my, my pleasure. And we always round out our episodes by saying, um, you know, what we're watching on TV or things we're looking forward to. I know that at present I'm, I'm you know, and it's a sad reason why I'm doing this, but I'm, I'm dipping into Anthony Bourdain's Parts Unknown series on Netflix. I'd uh, previously watched Anthony Bourdain's series like No Reservations and things like that and really loved them. And then after his super sad death uh, back in June... 
Uh, it took me a while. It took me about a month before I even wanted to watch him on TV. And I started watching uh, Parts Unknown. And every episode where he's getting out there, sometimes in really, you know, you know, rough places around the world, and he's connecting with people on a really human level. And I think, wow, you, you, you're quite a guy, and you've got this good grasp of the world and how it works. And <laughs> why did you kill yourself? Why did you kill yourself? You know, and it, it's, it's kind of sad sometimes to watch. It's it's always a really tragic thing, and just trying to figure out and the mindset's going to be so different for everyone but again just it's it's always so unfortunate when the world loses anyone like that and again just you look at for the outside he has the success and he has just this this world at his fingertips but again there just was something that you know who knows uh Mm. but it's just a very sad thing and and you know you mentioned it's kind of for sad reasons you're going back i've never watched anything with anthony bourdain Um, i'm really kind of sad to say and it's been on my list. I just haven't quite gotten to it yet. Um, because again, is when he did pass away, there was just this massive outpouring, not just of grief, but of appreciation. Mm-hmm. And hearing some of the things you said, like the way he would engage different cultures on a very human level and a very understanding level, wanting to learn about them. Um, you know, I mean, this is such a, t- I don't want to tie this doctor, but again, it's, but this is the kind of same kind of thing that I think is, is who fans and just as fans of genre and science fiction as well as this is reality, but it's, this is, this is what we want to see. We want to see adventure. We want to see understanding and acceptance of these different cultures and just, and bringing things th- to light that are different than us. I mean, so I, yeah, I, I haven't gotten to it yet, but maybe that's uh that's, that's the next thing on my list. I need to get started. Yeah, Parts Unknown, just great. I mean, even in the first series, I think there's about like eight episodes each series, and I think there's eight series on Netflix. Um, You know, like he's in Myanmar, he's in Colombia, he's in Libya. You know, how many times do you see people down on the street in Libya getting around and seeing what's going on, you know? And it's just really good stuff. Yeah. You know, it's it's one of the things that... um you know, we, we have a, a greater amount of diversity, both in our fiction and nonfiction than we've had in the past. Um, and it's where I think it's important to challenge ourselves sometimes or to, or to seek these things out that maybe aren't what we would usually go with. Um, mm. and, and to learn about these things, uh, you know, it's, it's really worthwhile. Um, you know, especially I live in a very conservative part of California, probably the most conservative part of California and, uh, people here are just very close minded. So mm. getting those opportunities to learn about these things or even travel and experience these things, um, it's it's just important. So, yeah. yeah. And, you know, maybe not quite so exotic, but um, one of the shows I've been watching, um, it's a Canadian sitcom, and it's called Kim's Convenience. Uh, it originally was a stage play uh, that won a lot of awards, and it was adapted. There's been two seasons of this sitcom, and it's about a Korean family who runs a convenience store. And the eldest son's in his early 20s. Uh, he's now uh, kind of ostracized to the family due to some bad stuff that had happened. He was kind of a screw-up, got in trouble with the law. Uh, whereas the daughter is more of kind of like an artsy photographer type. Um, you know, so it's it's this kind of this family with this friction who also loves each other a lot. Um, and it just, from everything I've seen and just from my own experience with friends who are Korean growing up, a lot of it rings very true. Um it's one of those things where it's a funny sitcom. It's genuinely funny. And the way they build punchlines is amazing, but there's an underlying heart to the story uh, that Mm. just really keeps it to, to where you're engaged and you want to continue with it. Um, So I'd heard good things. I binged both series in a week. Uh, Thankfully season three is coming soon. Um, I know it showed up on American Netflix within the last month or two. um, And it might be on Australian Netflix, uh, I've just Googled it while uh, you're talking, and it says in July it became available internationally on Netflix. So I've, yeah. I've actually got this on my Netflix right now, so I'm going to look it up. 
Yeah, you know, um, and what I would say is it's the perfect thing for if you just need a few hours to decompress after work or on the weekend. Um, you know, it's just whether you watch one episode or a few episodes, um, it's just really engaging and it just builds up like the best sitcoms do. So definitely recommend that one. Fantastic. And to tie it back to Anthony Bourdain, he goes to Koreatown in Los Angeles in <laughs> uh, in that first episode, in that first series rather, of um, Parts Unknown. Yeah. Well, you know, and it's interesting even uh, going to, to cultures that may be a little different than mine, but uh, would be home to you is uh, after I finished Kim's Convenience, Netflix always gives recommendations out about if you like this, try that. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, Netflix thought, well, you like this thing that takes place in a store. Let's give you a bunch of things that are very nihilistic and take place in stores. Um, <laughs> so there was a, an Australian series called Rostered On. Uh, it, so I'm not sure if this is something that's, you know, again, it's one of those things that we have no frame of reference if this was a successful show or just some random thing that got thrown up there. But uh, it was kind of like at, a, at an electronics Best Buy kind of store, you know, and whatever. And just but all the characters were really loathsome and things like that. So I just thought I'd throw it out there because I wasn't sure if it was something you were familiar with. But um, I'm not recommending it. But it was just kind of one of those odd things that you find yourself watching, hoping it's going to get better. And it didn't really get there. So. Okay. Yeah, I've I've quickly looked it up because it didn't ring any bells for me. And it looks like it originally debuted on Facebook and YouTube. uh, And and then it ended up on Netflix. And Luke Buckmaster at The Guardian gave it two stars, writing, (laughs) You'd be hard-pressed, you'd be hard-pressed, Mike, to find anyone who'd consider this sleazy posturing of this Netflix relaunch good comedy and criticized its amateurish writing and Bush League production values. Yeah, so so I need to find some Australian exports that are of good quality. So I'll, okay. I'll, that'll be one of my homework assignments here. I'll try to see what I can come up with. All right, I'll see if I can make a list up too. We do have some good shows. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right, well, look, Mike, that brings us to the end of the episode. Thank you again so much for joining us while uh, Dave is away. Dave, hope you enjoyed the episode. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, do you have a topic for next month already picked out? We do, and we are going to do, just like I had my Davo episode, we are finally going to do a First Doctor episode for Dave. Dave's favourite Doctor, we're going to do it start to finish, just like we did for Davo next month. I cannot wait. Um, you know, I watched The Myth Makers a week ago, and I'm going to be trying to work through the Daleks master plan next. And again, as I, I look forward to hearing Dave's perspective of being such a big fan as well as yours. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. Looking forward to it. I think I'll get approximately two and a half minutes during the uh, <laughs> runtime, and the rest will be Dave. <laughs> well, surely that's enough to maybe discuss like three companions, right? <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> Thanks again, Mike. It's been great. Thank you so much. Have a good one. See ya. You've been listening to The Doctor Who Show, the podcast where too much Doctor Who is barely enough. Subscribe to us on iTunes or listen through the website at www.thedwshow.net. Write to us at hello at thedwshow.net or send us a quickie on Twitter at thedwshow. Facebook.com forward slash thedwshow is also a good place to find us if you're so inclined. Our version of the Doctor Who theme arranged by George Locke. Look him up on YouTube, folks. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Doctor Who, all names and sounds, and any other related items are trademarks and or copyrights of the BBC. All other trademarks and trade names are properties of their respective owners. The official Doctor Who website can be found at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash Doctor Who.